Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 1460 of Effectively Wild. This episode was recorded live in New York on Thursday night at Subculture on Bleecker Street. It was a Fangraphs live event, and Meg and I emceed. We did three panels back to back to back, no breaks in between, one on general interest baseball news and some Yankees and Mets, one on stats and stat cast, and one on scouting and the evolution of player evaluation. You'll hear many of your favorite Fangraphs writers and former Effectively Wild guests, so you're going to hear the whole thing right now. We had a great time and as a podcast this will be the longest episode ever of effectively wild more than two hours seven guests so settle in Very prompt. Um, thanks for coming out and hanging out with us. Welcome to Fangraphs Live, very official name. Uh, we want to thank you all for joining us, especially our Fangraphs members. I'm Meg Rowley, for those of you who I haven't met, and I'm joined, as always. <laughs> Almost always, by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, everyone, and thanks to everyone listening to us and Effectively Wild and our Patreon supporters who are here or not here. Thanks to all of you. We appreciate it so much. Um, just to give you guys a sense of what we're going to do tonight, this is our illustrious MLB slash Yankees Mets panel. It'll be followed by uh, Baseball by the Numbers, which was my desperate way of describing what Mike Petriello and Craig Edwards will talk about. And then uh, <laughs> our delightful prospect boys will finish out the night for us. So I'm going to allow our panelists to introduce themselves, and then we'll get going here. So Lindsay, you want to kick us off? Yeah. I'm Lindsay Adler. I cover the Yankees for The Athletic. Mark Craig with The Athletic. I used to cover the Mets. <laughs> Jay Jaffe, senior writer of Fangraphs. And can I get all the Yankees fans in the house to say hello? <laughs> and <I'll... laughs> you, could, you could lean in a little less <laughs> if you wanted to. And can I get all the Mets fans in the house? Okay. That's a, that's a good distribution. Sounds about even. Yeah, not too that, bad. That's happier than normal, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say you're all very enthusiastic, I so I guess... I didn't hear any Mets fans shout the number of rings, though. <laughs> uh, ben came to play, is what we've learned. Um, and I guess with that, we'll start with some Yankees and Mets questions and then shift to all the bad, awful things that are happening around baseball. Um, so I'm going to start by directing this one at Lindsay, who, as you all know, is the beat writer for the Yankees, for The Athletic. When Brian Cashman discussed the Yankees season at the end, when they were uh, dismissed by the Astros, he said, we failed in our final game, but it wasn't a failed season. We're going to get into some specific areas of need for that roster in a second, but what do you expect their overall approach to be this offseason? I think, I think they have an understanding that this is the time to go for it. I think they really understand the deficiencies with the roster and the team and you know how things kind of shook out in 2019, but I think Cashman is very correct that it was not, it was not a failure. Um, it was remarkable in a lot of ways. And I think this is the time that they should really kind of look away from increasing in the margins and 
yes, I know you guys are all waiting for us to announce Garrett Cole, so that's <laughs> what I think would be the uh, best way to go into 2020 for them. Yeah, I guess that's the next question, right? Because I think the contrast when Yankees fans saw Garrett Cole and Justin Ruander and thought, we don't have those guys, so maybe we should go get one of those guys. So. Is this going to be a, a starting pitcher-centric offseason? I mean, there was the, the Paxton acquisition, so it's not as if they paid no attention to that, but we've heard so much about the bullpen of doom with the Yankees, and I wonder whether we will shift back to actually going after starters again. Yeah, I think it's interesting thinking about Patrick Corbin last year and how everything played out and how they just kind of weren't willing to give that extra year, and I just think when it comes to Garrett Cole, who's the best pitcher on the planet, I think you know, shying away from that final year. I don't think that's really, a, it, it should not be a consideration for him. And I think they understand that they have a couple front line starters. Um, obviously we all saw James Paxton take really great strides mid-season, but you know, they have a, they have a rotation of a lot of mid-rotation guys. And so I think up and down, everyone, everyone knows that that should in fact be the priority and the best way to improve the rotation very, very quickly is is right there. This can go to Lindsay, but it can go to any of you also. So Didi Gregorius is a free agent. When I wrote this question, Greg Bird was still on the roster. Uh, DJ LeMahieu, <laughs> Glaber Torres, Miguel Andujar, Mike Ford, Gio Urshela, Luke Voigt, they all remain. Last year demonstrated the value of depth. I think that the Yankees got a lot of flack for the LeMahieu signing and then looked around and were like, aren't we smart? Um, and so they've, they've shown that depth is important, but obviously there are a lot of other places, including the rotation, that they want to spend some money. How do you expect that infield situation to shake out? Well, you know, I think that they saw enough good stuff out of, out of Torres at shortstop that they could probably let, let uh, Didi go. Um, but if they do that, you know, I mean, things fall into place to some extent. You've got uh, DJ at second base. Then you've got Voight and, and Mike Ford at first base. You've got uh, Andujar and uh, Gio uh, Urshela at, at third base. But you still have to find room for somebody else who could play shortstop on the roster. So, you know, you're, you're going to want some kind of uh, insurance slash depth uh, in there. But, you know, the other thing, you could, you could think about trading from surplus. You could think about... Uh, uh, the possibility of trading Voight, even though his, his value is maybe a little bit depressed right now. You could think about trading Andujar, even though, again, his value is a little bit depressed. I mean, he's kind of a guy without a position, given how bad he is at third base, and you know the assumption that uh, he's not going to make strides that quickly. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. I think he just put a first baseman's mitt on Andujar, no? I mean, that's that's a possibility. And then you've got a whole, lot, a whole lot of inventory to clear out there if you're, if you're you know, thinking about the rest of the roster. Until they all get hurt, and then we Until they all get hurt. But you can't, you can't go into, into a season carrying three first basemen and no, no. And no backup shortstop. Yeah, Fangraphs doesn't endorse three first basemen on the roster. <laughs> I tend to think that's a bad idea. Speaking of guys who get hurt, should we have a moment of silence for Jacoby Ellsbury's Yankees career? Just remember all the good times. I I, I like the line. The the line. Um, somebody asked how how are we going to remember Jacoby Ellsbury's Yankees career? And I was like, maybe put him on a milk carton because most of us don't remember it. Jay also came to play. My goodness. Like so. It's very easy to be snarky about that, right? But what blew my mind is that when you walked into the clubhouse, there was literally no trace 
of his existence, which I've never seen before from a team, for a player that was still technically involved or, or employed by the team. Like it was beyond not having a desk in the office. It was just like your name wasn't even on a little board when you're in and out. Like I mean nothing. Like it was like he just did not exist. Just, right? And he works from home. He um, works from home. <laughs> yeah, I mean he. Um, he did still have a locker at the beginning of the year, but then everybody started dropping like flies, so then it went to Gio Urshela. Um, in the two years being around the team, I never once spoke to Jacoby because Brian Cashman, citing just not needing to pay him a per diem, let him rehab in Arizona during spring training, and then the one week he was in Tampa, I happened to be back in New York. So yeah, never even never even covered the Jacoby experience. Wow, they screwed him out of the per diem. <laughs> yeah, well, Cashman also told us exactly where he was working out in Arizona and said something along the lines of, "If any of you want a project," and I was like, "I gotta go." <laughs> uh, Lindsay, we kind of asked you about this when we had you on, I think, earlier this year, but the way that they were able to replace everyone with people who were better than the people who were there originally somehow, even though none of us had ever heard of any of them, and they all had career years at the same time. Is that maybe not repeatable to that degree, but do you believe that that is a skill that this front office or coaching staff or player development staff has? I think it's definitely a skill. I think they've done a really good job of acquiring players from teams that were not as smart as them. You know, look at Luke Voigt coming from the Cardinals and playing for, let's start with playing for Mike Matheny when he was there. You know, look at DJ LeMahieu and Mike Talkman coming from the Rockies, which from everything I've learned, it sounds like the Rockies are still in the freaking dark ages. It's an odd organization yeah. would be the nice way of putting it. Yeah, so I think they do a good job of finding guys who have not been put in the best situations. I think there's probably some luck, some fluke, but you know, between Voight and Talkman and I guess DJ, you know, the next time they make some random trade for some dude I've never heard of and I don't even like tweet about it, I'm just gonna assume that he's going to be like a contender for, for next year's AL MVP and just <laughs> save myself the grief. They don't make random trades as a thing, right? So let's go back, this is before pitch framing became something we all talk about and acknowledge. This is way back when. Francisco Cervelli, that's how long ago this was, he had been like their entrenched backup. And literally the last day of spring training, this is how freaking hardcore cash, they trade him away. They trade him away to San Francisco and they get back a dude named Chris Stewart. And people are like, what the hell is this? Like, what, why are they, this is like a nobody player, why are they doing this? Well, they'd been on the framing stuff. And if you look back, Stewart had, you know, so at the GM meetings, just what, last week, I was talking to somebody from a team that we would consider a smart team, quote unquote. And he was like, and we're just talking about something else at the end of it, and he's like, he had this like look on his face. I'm like, dude, what's wrong? And he's like, damn it. The Yankees are always on the right players. I'm sick of it, Yeah. All right? Like they're always on the right guys. And then on top of that, they have the money to spend on the good guys. So. They're gonna sign Garrett Cole. I mean, that's what they're waiting for, right? Like, so I mean, like, if you listen to that, that tells me, as Lindsay was saying, like, dang, they know he's a good player. They're not afraid to spend money, and they're always on the right guys. And as much criticism as they get here for not winning in what 11 years, like the other good teams in the league are still terrified <laughs> of them. Yeah. Except, but but I mean, to to what extent they do seem to be afraid to spend money though lately. Right. I mean, they, they you know the like Corbin example and and. 
obviously they weren't you know factors at all in, in the in the Machado or, or, or Harper sweepstakes and you know that that makes some sense given the areas of, of depth. So they Harper have the came up in this conversation we had, and he's like, "That's a player who's obviously very good, but is that the guy that you back up the truck for?" I think you can make the argument, "No, it is not." Right? Like it's not. Whereas a Garrett Cole, let's say, very obviously is one of those guys that you back up the truck for. Right. I wonder what it's like to have not won a championship in 11 years. That's <laughs> <laughs> the Yankee fans here. It's torture. Uh -huh. Torture for them. Yeah. My postseason drought can drive and is going to college in the fall. We're very excited <laughs> for the postseason drought. Early returns are good. Um, <laughs> I think uh, because we have so many Mets fans here, don't worry. We are going to talk about the Mets, and we'll start that right now. Um, so unlike last season, or offseason, I should say, when – Pete Alonzo and Jeff McNeil's roles were sort of up in the air. We weren't quite sure how that was going to settle. Uh, and there was a ton of churn on the roster, guys at the prospect level going out, you know, major leaguers coming in. The 2019 Mets look pretty set apart from the rotation. They obviously are going to have to deal with the loss of Wheeler. What do you guys think that the Mets are going to do? Is that an internal replacement? Are they going to look outside the organization? Are these Mets fans going to get to cheer for Garrett Cole? You're not going to, but I'm going to ask the question that way. Anyhow, uh, what do you think the approach is going to be to the rotation? Well, outside of getting Harvey back? <laughs> I mean, it sounds to me like they're probably going to focus on the bullpen, and, and, and you know, I've heard that they're thinking about Lugo and Kasselman as, as – as you know, potential rotation uh, guys. You know, they've got they've got players that they can trade. I mean, Dominic Smith is is somebody that they could use to get like a real arm. JD Davis doesn't seem like he's going to fit if you're actually thinking about a real center fielder and putting uh, uh, Nimmo and Conforto at the corners and and maybe you know seeing if Yoenis Cespedes is still alive. Um, it's, it's it's weird. Like the there Mets, was proof of life the other day. Yeah, you didn't I, see there, it on Twitter. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the <laughs> Mets are just such a mismatched collection of parts, and have been for like ten years. It seems like no real center fielder except Lagares. You know, uh, too many infielders of, of certain of certain types, and, and it's it, it all like they need to be making <laughs> trades. You know, they, they I what mean, what types they, are those, Jay? <laughs> they need to be making. I mean, like JD Davis doesn't have a position. You can't play him at third base. You know you can't play him in the outfield either. Um, so I don't. I don't know. I think I think they have a, they have a lot to to deal from if they're willing to deal. They seem so scared to make a mistake though. But I you know I think they sound like they're going to focus on the bullpen rather than the rotation. I guess this this is sort of the opposition research question. But which teams in their respective divisions should fans of the Yankees and the Mets be worried about this offseason or focusing on just Biggest needs, obviously, the NL East is very competitive, and there are almost every team is, is competitive <laughs> in that division. And so, I guess which will be the big mover if there is one? If there's like a Phillies from last offseason, let's say. I mean, to me, you know, they all have the potential to to do something. I mean, we've already seen the Braves get active uh, with the bullpen. They still need a starter. They still need to figure out who's going to play third base for them. All th the Braves. The Nationals and the Phillies all need a third baseman. You know, obviously Rendon and, yeah, and Donaldson. Yeah, only there are, were a really good one available. Yeah, Rendon and Donaldson are both free agents. I mean, I think one of those guys is going to sign with a with 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 one of the teams. I wouldn't be surprised if one of them, you know, escapes the division. But you know, you've got a lot of needs on 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 all those teams. 
uh, Strasburg being a free agent. It wouldn't be a surprise if either Rendon or Strasburg goes back to Washington, but certainly not both, so they're going to have big needs there. The Phillies, obviously, I think, you know, they've already spent money last year, but they, you know, it, it wasn't, it didn't work out for them, so you think that they're going to have to do something, and third base being a, being a real weakness for them with, with Franco, uh, that they're going to be a, a player for Donaldson, they're going to be a player for Cole, perhaps. It seems like there are big moves waiting to happen all over the division, and obviously the Nationals right now are the team to beat because they won the World Series, but... Um, any of those teams, I think, are, are, are capable of, of being, you know, a serious threat, you know, to win the division next year. Dude, I like the desperation in Philadelphia, right? Because, <laughs> like, we can't measure that, right? But, like, at the end of the day, these are human beings, and you've got an owner who's sticking his neck out and spent all that money, and then they stunk. And then now, like, they've got some clear needs, and you've got a GM that might be on thin ice. Like, it just, to me, that is the perfect storm of... You know, they've spent some money, and now there's, like, a little heat at their backs. And, and, you know, I think bringing Girardi in was a really good move for them. He'll clean a lot of things up there. I know you can go back and forth about what a manager does wins and losses-wise, but I think it's indisputable what they do culture-wise. And I think Joe has a track record that is very strong, and it's sort of exactly what they needed. So um, for me, it's Philadelphia that's most intriguing moving forward because the swing there, if, if that if they act on this desperation that I'm overplaying, but like there's still an element of it there, I think makes it really, really interesting moving forward. I mean, I would just like to know what Boston's problem is, really. I mean, the idea that- It means so many different yeah, things. Yeah, that, that's very true. I'm in New York, that's a safe joke. Um, you know, I, I don't see them getting better next year if they're you know, plan is to shed payroll. The the one I really think to be afraid of for Yankees fans is the Rays. I mean, they're so smart. They make all these good decisions. They were in very very heavily on DJ LeMahieu. So, you know, they're seeing the same things. I didn't particularly find their team this year to be a lot of fun, but I found them to be really clean, and I think that's a really great starting point. And I think it's nuts that they could win this many games last year and then go the way that they did. Dude, they take risks. Yeah. I think that's why Tampa's such a great pick there. Like, Charlie Morton. Yeah. I mean, man, what a year. And, they and hired they, Jeff Sullivan. The risk <laughs> involved. Well, and and, and they, they, they have fewer glaring holes than, than, than any of the other yeah. contenders in the division. I mean, they you do. look at that roster, it's like, yeah, you could use an upgrade here and here, but, I mean, they're, they're rotation-wise, I mean, if you assume that you know another year that, that, that Blake Snell is probably going to bounce back somewhat, um, it, it, they look pretty solid. They need like additions around the margins, whereas they don't need like something right in the middle. Maybe we want to take the temperature of the crowd. Would you like us to use this as an opportunity to talk about Carlos Beltran and then use that as a clunky transition into the Astros? <laughs> or would you rather that we move directly to the macro stuff? Choose your own adventure. Yeah, clunky transition. <laughs> all right, so well, all right, that sounded unlike enough. So um, before we get to the like little Mets part of this, so um, Callaway clearly was not one of Brody's guys, and now the Mets have new management, uh, stalwart, a fan favorite. Um, I'm curious what you guys think this is going to mean in terms of actual changes for the Mets, because uh, it's. It's always hard to tell what's going to matter with the Mets. 
Is this going to matter with the Mets? You don't have to answer Why this. Why are you looking at me? Don't look at me. You just have a good institutional knowledge. You do look guilty. Um, well, did they change owners this offseason? Don't think so. Yeah. No. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to say no. It's probably not going to. I mean, that's not. Like, look, I think the Beltran hire was cool in a lot of ways. Like, I think there is a credibility because of his resume. No doubt about that. Okay. Sure. Um, I just think, like, with any, uh, like, these organizations are giant ships, right? And, like, to move directions on them, like, I'm not sure that a manager or even a couple players is enough to do that. That's got to come from upstairs. And so that's not to say it's impossible for them to win. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that hurdles to get there are still in place. And so that makes it kind of tough to be like, oh, things are going to change. Never has the articulation of ship been more important than it was in that sentence. I thought it was going in a very different direction. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I keep coming back to that stupid Mickey Calloway quote about 85% of the decisions he makes go against analytics, which I've you know referenced 18 times in, in, in the last six weeks. Um, and Meg can vouch for that. Um, you know, there was such when 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 Brody came on, there were there was so you know so much comment about how they're beefing up the analytics department, and if you know if the manager is not using that stuff, well, you know the general manager, if he's going to succeed, he he needs a guy who's going to at least utilize some of the you know some of what he's given there and be on the same page, and this seems like a better situation uh, with that. I, I I don't think you can you know you can hire a manager if you're if you're in that situation. You know, hoping that you're going to last in this job and not, you know, expect that there's going to be more harmony um, in that relationship than there was with the guy you inherited from the previous regime. So, you know, on that note, I have to think it's going to be better. Now, there's still, obviously, with the Mets, the ownership situation and the the, the pension for meddling and 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 all that that you have to get past, and it's all very well documented. But um, I, I guess I would be Optimistic, at least at least until I see, you know, you know how how uh, uh, how it plays out, um, you know, in in terms of the first time they hit a real snag. Yeah, there were a few days there after the Beltron hiring where I think no one was mad at the Mets about that. And it, it seemed like they they hadn't made a mistake, and then suddenly <laughs> their new manager is enmeshed in the biggest ben, scandal ben in baseball. Then what happens? Yeah, not. Not ideal that uh, it turns out that Carlos Beltran may have been very integrally involved in the Astros sign stealing scandal. I mean, for all we know, that was a selling point. Maybe the, the Mets are interested in stealing some signs, but... We hear you know about analytics. <laughs> yeah. so Tell us more. <laughs> this is something that potentially could hang over the team. I mean, we'll see how the investigation goes and whether particular players or, or managers or coaches or front office people will bear the brunt of this and whether you could talk about suspensions. But you, Mark and Lindsay, you've written about just how pervasive this stuff seems to be and how it does seem to be on a lot of teams' minds and how teams are trying to defend against it. So where do we go from here? Do we get some sort of sweeping changes? Can we get rid of signs entirely? Can we just do telepathy? I have to think the Astros were trying that and then it didn't work (laughs) and they went to the sign stealing scheme instead like oh the men with goat steals and gone I'm just here to tell the jokes that's my purpose tonight it's remarkable since that story dropped 
how many conspiracy theories are now coming to light because like I can't tell if this is like an episode of Get Smart, right? Like the shoe phones and whatever. Like I've heard so much crazy stuff, vibrating band-aids, flashing lights. Auto, I mean, it's stupid. And and but what at the end? Okay, so at the GM meetings, there was a subcommittee that was called together to discuss cameras taken to the ballpark by scouts because a lot of times now to do pitch tipping, scouts will pull a camera out. And, and train on the picture and then download it, send it back, and people go through and try to figure out if there's any tipping going on. At no point did they talk about not having cameras in the seats. It was more a debate about don't aim it at the dugout. So what that tells me is that like, it just implies that accepted level of whatever you want to call it. Cheating, espionage, scouting, spying, whatever. Like There's always going to be some element of it, and it's so ingrained that even in the midst of all of this, Nobody seriously took the, the obvious answer, which was do what the NFL does, take those cameras out of there, and everybody uses standard feed. No one really discussed that, which made me laugh, even in this context. So it's, I think that's what makes this so difficult to tackle. It is so ingrained in the game, right? Like, I mean, cheating in baseball is as old as baseball, right? Like, there used to be one umpire on the field. The term cutting the bags, that's because you, if you're that one umpire on the field keeping an eye on the ball, guys rounding third at the turn of the century knew you didn't have to touch the bag. All right? And this kind of stuff happened all the time, and the times change, yet the idea remains just as persistent, which in one way is sort of cool because baseball is awesome like that. <laughs> but like, you know, there's also what the Astros have allegedly done, which is, I mean, and, and we can, I don't have to enumerate those reasons why it's terrible if it's true. Yeah, I think it's uh, very clearly in baseball's best interest if this remains to the Astros. But, you know, bless your heart, Rob Manfred, that <laughs> everybody knows that is not the case. Um, I was really interested to see his statement where he was like, we have no reason to believe that it, you know, this is happening anywhere but Houston when by my understanding, teams are just complaining about each other and this shit all the time. So I don't know why anyone would have a reason to believe it's just Houston. That might be the most oblivious statement that a commissioner has said in the last 30 years, which is saying something given you know the, the legacy of Bud Selig. I just, I, like, I just want to understand. Like, I, there's just no way that he can possibly believe that, you know, given the reports that we're hearing, the rumors that we're hearing. It, it just it doesn't pa that doesn't pass the smell test to even the most casual fan. No, I, I I don't I don't get it. You know he's he was there's the whole steroid scandal played out and Bud Selig buried his head in the sand and wound up in the Hall of Fame anyway. But you know I don't under I I just I just want to understand why you would say something that when it inevitably spreads beyond the Astros, you're going to have well, to walk back. I have a theory. I mean, th that is, if you go after too many teams, you start to com compromise the base of support that, that Rob Manford has in, in terms of holding on to his job. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and that kind of goes into, if you wanted to stop the cheating part of it, you know who you punish in all of this. You don't take the draft picks away. You don't hammer the front office or whatever, because they'll work around that. Okay? What you do is you hammer the owner. Okay, you really want, because what would happen if... He has a police escort. No one I can heard talk that. To him. <laughs> <laughs> You're the, the owner who's been accused of war profiteering? Yeah. <laughs> it is, it oh, is kind one? of incredible that there isn't just someone being like, so we have an image problem. Maybe we don't bring the cops out for a crane. 
that was going to be the next question, the punishment. Let's <laughs> all discipline the Astros. What's your, your fantasy for how we punish them for their bad behavior? And keep in mind there are children in the front row. <laughs> you punish the owner. Like, if you punish the owner on this, seriously, if you punished Crane and you, you hammered him with a fine, like a really, like, and, and told the rest of the world what that fine was, the other 29 owners are going downstairs to the executive suite and baseball ops and going, knock this crap off right now. If you're doing it, I don't want to know about it, but stop it because you're going to cost me a lot of money. But I don't see that happening for a lot of different reasons, but I think that's, to me, the level this should take. That's the scope this should take. It shouldn't just be punish the Astros as a one-off because you did something bad. It's putting some teeth behind the statement from when the Red Sox went through this, where the next people that get caught are going to get you know really punished for it. Do it, actually do it, and you start at the highest levels. That's you do it in ownership. To me, yeah, it's it's kind of weird right now because you know, we talk about the Astros, but if the two names that we've heard, Alex Cora and and Carlos Beltran, are now working for other teams, you're punishing. Teams that don't have, I mean, well, okay, the Red Sox obviously have their own, you know, history of this going back, but Alex Cora wasn't involved in that. You know, Carlos Beltran, you know, hasn't done anything with the Mets that's, that's you know, actionable, you know, to, to penalize the Mets. So that's a real problem. I think it has to, it has to go higher up. I mean, I think that you, if, if it can be shown that, that uh, uh, Jeff Luno was, was aware of what was going on, I think you have to suspend him. Um, I don't know if you can go as far as, as, as kind of a lifetime ban type situation, the way that, the, the way that it happened in Atlanta, but um, you, you, know, you start to think about serious penalties at the executive level um, that would get some notice in terms of uh, the awareness of, of, uh, of front office people in, in, in all this. And this can't happen without some awareness of front office people. I mean, it's not like Alex Cora and Carlos Beltran are the guys that are pulling monitors in and, and, and making sure that the... Uh, uh, the video hookups are all there. Yeah, I just think, I mean, the Astros pick late. Money is basically nothing to most of these teams. It's it's insufficient. It's, I mean, at the end of the day, if Houston cheated their way to a World Series, they still have the World Series. You know, who who gives a crap about a couple draft picks? And obviously, front office people will say, I do. But in the grand scheme of things, it's the rare situation where you wonder, you know, would you trade draft picks for a World Series? And here the answer is definite. Yeah. But I think, Jay, as you said earlier, I think, and not to accuse the, the league office of any skullduggery, but I think if you punish the owners, you're putting the league in a tough spot. You're putting Rob Manfred in a tough spot. And I think at that point, you almost look at it as a conflict between his interests and not pissing everyone off and preserving the integrity of the sport. And I don't know what you do in that situation. It seems like it's going to get messy because <laughs> you would just think that anyone who's going to be punished for this will say, well, what about them, though? They're doing it, too. Or it was self-defense. We had to steal signs because they were stealing our signs. And that may not excuse what you were doing, but if you just you know, cast dispersions on enough other teams, then maybe they just can't punish everyone. And once they bring that up in the investigation, then you're kind of obligated to go down that road too, and who knows how many teams this ends up kind of bringing into all of this, we'll see. 
Go well, ahead. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know if other teams really want it to spread. I mean, at the end of the day, the whistleblowers you had were Mike Fires and Danny Farquhar, and I think that says a lot. Yeah. This is instructive, though, too, in a way, because if it weren't, it, it, the Houston Astros made so many people mad in baseball that there were so many folks that couldn't wait for something to happen where they can go get their like, comeuppance, right? That, yeah. that really is like, and I, I know like, it's been said, but like, we're only talking about this because they made people mad, okay? Because all, like, and, and it's always that honor among thieves kind of thing, like you, you kind of let stuff slide, but. L literal thieves in li this case. <laughs> literal thieves. Well, so that was a bummer. Before we get to questions, <laughs> though, we're gonna, we're gonna come up again, and I'm going to ask each of you to say, what you would change about baseball, a rule, a schedule change, paying the minor leaguers, what, what would you do at this moment, at this juncture, to make baseball more compelling? And before any of you start, we're gonna have a, a stand mic, uh, sound guy who I can't see. Um, there's a stand mic uh, for questions, so it's gonna be in the center aisle here. So while they're answering that question, you can follow the spot and uh, queue up to ask some questions uh, once they're done. Thank you. Friends? I have a lot of things. You can't say pay minor league players and expect me to say anything else, but <laughs> kind of along those lines, I mean, you know, I could say shorten the schedule, players' bodies are taking to it hard, blah, 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 but no, the entire compensation structure just needs to be flipped. You know, the idea, and I, I really thought about it a lot, thinking about Jacoby Ellsbury last night, of getting underpaid in your prime years, getting overpaid in your late years. It's done, it's broken, it's not working. There's no reason that Aaron Judge should be getting paid less than almost anyone in that goddamn room. You know, Aaron Judge, Gleyber Torres should not be underpaid to the extent that they are. And that Making to me is the big thing. relievers, some of, yeah. I mean, like the Yankees relievers are all good, but generally. Yeah. Since you stole my answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know what exactly it would be, but just find a way to get the ball and play more again. Because like, I'm really sick of watching dudes just strike out all the time. Like, I get why it happens and I get, you know, all that stuff, but it's still entertainment. There's still an aesthetic value to the game, and it's ugly right now. I think it's just ugly. And that I'm, you're gonna do the okay boomer thing, like you okay did boomer. <laughs> but like, but I agree with him. Back in my I day, do I grew up in the '80s, all right, and 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 that's when I started watching baseball. And you know what they did? They put the ball in play and they ran, and they ran balls down to the gaps, and they stole bags, and like they took chances. And you know what? That shit was fun. All right? It was fun. So I would like to see that again. I, I, I love homers too, great. But you know, I would also like to see the athleticism back in the game. So I think whatever it is that you do, find a way to get guys to put the ball in play again. Yeah, I think you know, tweaking the strike zone has been a time-honored mechanism of restoring the balance between pitchers and hitters. And I think that there, you, know, you, can, you, you can do things about that. You can experiment with it maybe in spring training or in the minor leagues. To get to encourage, you know, more, you know, more balls in play. I think I, I, this is something I've been thinking about, not just along along that line and change, but thinking about like when we talk about baseball and we talk about you know analyzing baseball, start caring about batting average again, because batting average is fun. Like, think about the the, the MVP arguments 
I'm not saying DJ LeMahieu should have should be MVP, but there's a reason people care about B DJ LeMahieu, and it's like you're hitting 330, you're putting the ball in play, you're doing things, you you know, guys are running around on the field, he's not striking out. There's fun there, and there, and like let's stop talking about like you know batting like caring about batting averages being like the scourge of you know uh, it's a connection to casual fandom, it's a connection to the game's history, it's. Something that I think, from the analytics side, we've gone too far overboard yeah. in 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 working against, you know, to like to de-emphasize. And and this is something I kind of came up in my book a little bit, and a thread that I that I wish I'd pursued a little bit more. But the more I see it now, with what Mark's talking about, with the strikeouts and things like that, give a shit about batting average again. But what wins and losses? No. 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 Okay. Still stupid. <laughs> still stupid. I mean. It is Fangraphs. We have to draw the line somewhere. Uh, I'm new here. Yeah. I'm just <laughs> We're so glad you're here. Are, are folks uh, keen to ask questions? You should queue up to the mic. You should ask questions. Oh, brave souls. He's going to be like, don't you see my kid in the front row? Stop swearing. <laughs> so I, I certainly didn't expect to come to a Fangraphs event and hear people sort of romanticize batting average, but <laughs> there's something to that. Just curious. Um, Maybe two questions. One to Lindsay: Does does Hal care about winning? And then, somewhat relatedly, Hal Steinbrenner, that is. Uh, <laughs> somewhat relatedly, how aware is Major League Baseball, and how big a problem do they think it is that it seems that at any given point in time, you only have twenty percent of the teams trying to win? <laughs> I mean, half of most of these teams seem to be in the constant cycle of rebuild, try to get to some level of mediocrity, oh, we lost our window, tear it down again. Yeah, um, first of all, I really love your son's Pitching Ninja t-shirt. It's fantastic, <laughs> a nerd in training, great. Very good. Um, we are sorry about the swearing, I mean, a little sorry. Yeah. Um, yes, how... It's nothing how, he hasn't heard at home. Oh. <laughs> um, Jose Altuve, maybe? Um, no, how... How cares about winning? And I think something that, you know, it's it's not my job to stump for Yankees ownership, but I think when we talk about the Yankees are not spending, there's a little bit of a boss filter or something like that. I mean, they're they have like two ten committed on the books now. When we talk about teams like, oh yeah, Atlanta's going for it, and I don't know, last I looked, their payroll was like one sixty. It kind of puts it into context for me. I think a lot of that money obviously is going exclusively to Giancarlo Stanton and Jacoby Ellsbury. But no, I mean, it's there's a commitment to winning. And I just think that, you know, kind of from Hal down to Cashman, they're really trying to do it just in a different way from what most Yankees fans are used to. And I think it's totally understandable that that's really frustrating, especially with this, you know, terrible, awful 10-year championship drought. But no, it's the humanity. Ugh. How um, old are you? <laughs> good question. Okay. Oh, so you saw one. <laughs> okay. Congrats. That's the same way that I saw a Knicks championship. Yeah. Mm. So, I want to keep I want to keep the line moving because we do have a tight schedule to keep to. Um, thank you for your question. I'm sure we are going to get to uh, the motivations of ownership here, but why don't we hear from this gentleman here? Hi. I hope this didn't make my last question redundant that I've been wanting to ask for the last 20 minutes, but uh, 
I'm not sure the way to put this, but I kind of think about, are we getting to a point where, I know owners were always cheap, but are we getting to a point where the economics, the, this fatalistic capitalism thing where we view every baseball team as just a corporation, we only care about, and I know this is another how thing, is, is profiting becoming at odds with winning the World Series? Because a lot of Yankee fans think that how is just content with and yes, they spent $210 million, but obviously you can make the argument that 20 years ago we had the same payrolls back then when you adjust for inflation and average payroll. Yeah, no, I, think, I, I, I think you know, the, the most recent collective bargaining agreement did a lot to de-incentivize winning. And you know, the, the, the slow growth of the competitive balance tax uh, threshold compared to you know, the inflation of salaries um, the amount of money that goes into, into revenue sharing, the increase in you know, television and um, advanced media revenue, all of these things have insulated teams from, you know, they've insulated teams, from, like there's a bigger disconnect now than there was before, you know, when, uh, between winning and, and profitability. And, you know, there's, there's less pressure on these teams to win to make whatever nut they need to make. And, this has all happened, you know, you know, kind of without most people really being aware of it. But it, it, if you compare, you know, where the where the game was five, ten years ago, we're in a really bad spot because of this collective bargaining agreement. And you know, the 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 players' union, I think, messed up pretty badly in terms of accepting some of the terms. And you know, progressively has the union is much less powerful than it was, you know, twenty, thirty years ago. This is. This is a real problem, and it, also the fact that you know the fact is is that you know just about every team it's corporate ownership now, and so of course there's you know you're talking about bean counters more than you're talking about you know family ownership, the way that you know used to be uh, the model within baseball. Yeah, I think that's you know the the thing Cashman keeps saying is that paying a competitive balance tax, at the end of the day helps their competition, and I think it's kind of disingenuous. But I understand the sentiment, but I also think the last thing Major League Baseball should be doing is punishing the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Dodgers, these enormous market teams for spending. You know, it's the inequality in baseball is still there. The top teams are still going to be at the top because instead of spending on, you know, top tier free agents, they're spending on information and analytics and becoming smarter and working with what they do have. But I do think it's just so interesting, like you said, with, you know, more corporate ownership, it makes the job of someone like Scott Boris, you know, feel about him how you may, more difficult because he cannot just go over a general manager's head and plea to ownership and, you know, get the emotional response. Unless it's San Diego. Thank you for your question. Thanks, I appreciate it. We'll get the fellow behind you here. And before other people queue up, we're going to end this one at 8.15. So I told you to line up, and I lied terribly because I am the worst. But we will have other panels with other questions. So if we don't get to you, be appropriately mad at me, but don't leave. Yeah. So I... I guess kind of continuing on that theme a little bit, uh, seeing kind of seeing the Mets over the last year has been really interesting because in a lot of ways they were kind of shockingly watchable in that they were very, they made like the bad decisions that were fun. Yeah. You know, like Jeff McNeil gave a shit about batting average 
And I'm really wondering how you guys feel either like the perception of the Mets kind of plays into that, or number one, or like number two, how like the, uh, like your role, which is obviously like making good decisions um, and like, and like analytically based decisions kind of is at odds with that idea of making these decisions that are like, there was no reason for the Mets to open their window. And they're like, we're gonna do it anyway. You just said, like what the overarching theme is here. Like, I think it's great that there's science in baseball. I think it's great that teams are making informed decisions about what they're doing. But what also has happened is that the analytics that we love, that we're all sitting here, that like it's sort of one way we process the game, it's also been weaponized by really rich people that don't like to spend money. That simple as that, period. Just put a period on it right there. So. It used to be that you can make emotional decisions, as, as you referred to here in this weird-ass off-season last year, and like, you would see a bunch of teams do that. But I also find it funny in that there's this romantic idea that at some point in baseball, all the teams were competitive. Go take a look at like World Series champions 1901 to 1950, right? There's a reason the Yankees won all those championships. Part, they were good and they had all the resources, but you know what? There are like three, four teams in the American League that didn't give a crap. They just straight up didn't care, all right? Like they did enough to get asses in the seats because back then that's how you made your money. But like you're telling me the St. Louis Browns were a well-run operation for all that? Like, I mean, there were just teams that have, rolled over the Kansas City I've never said days. that ever in my right, life. Right? <laughs> Not once, right? Not even one so, time. So, you know, like look at, look at like those teams back in the Washington Senators, right? St. Louis Browns, Kansas City, Philadelphia A's. Yeah. They were just so non-competitive for so long. So this idea that, oh, everyone had a chance back in the day. No, they didn't. No, they did not. Take a look. You know, this is normal. Almost, right? I just have one comment for you. Don't, you're gonna do it. Go. Okay, boomer. There it is. <laughs> I am very sorry to ask the rest of you to sit down, but I couldn't possibly ask us to do anything more than that. So we're gonna do other questions for other panels. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Let's give a round Thank of applause you. to our MLB panel. Bring your twin out with you. And now, for our twins, I said I wasn't going to bring it up, but I really lied. <laughs> Thank you for that. I appreciate it. For those yeah. of you listening at home. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Mike is the one with here. the brown shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Mine are gray. Um, <laughs> so very different. Um, we will ask the two of you to introduce yourselves for our listeners at home and also for those of uh, our fans in the audience who might not know you. My name is Craig Edwards. I write for Fangraphs. I'm Mike Petriello. I write for MLB.com, and I used to write for Fangraphs. Aw, erstwhile Fangraphs employees are our favorite. Um, we entitled this uh, panel Baseball by the Numbers, which we could have done for any of these panels because we're all into stats. Um, but we're going to go in a slightly different direction to start. I am curious how the two of you approach idea generation at this time of year because well, we did have a couple of free agent signings, which is surprising given that it's before Thanksgiving. Um, but generally, this time of year is a little quiet. We don't have new Major League Baseball. How do you guys approach getting ideas going? And Craig, as your editor, I will not hold any of this against you. 
Well, I'm going to guess you're going to say something similar, which is that this time of year isn't that bad, right? It's it's not that far from the end of the season. You can still kind of wish cast all sorts of players to all sorts of teams. Like February is when I want to die. That's I keep telling my wife we're taking three weeks off in February so I don't have to think about baseball because at that point either everyone's signed or it's like, oh, God, this free agent is still in the market. I can't think about him anymore. Right now it's like, oh, you know, these are the 10 best places for this free agent, you know, or here's something cool we're working on. Um, I generally have a little notepad on my desk or like a saved Google Doc where it's like I'll come across ideas. I get a lot of value out of random generic beat writer reports. Well, they'll like they'll think the story is, oh, this is going to be the story for the winter and like buried in the seventh paragraph it'll be. And this guy's working on a new curveball or something. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's awesome. And I'll, like, I'll write that down and I'll come back to that. That's It's not that bad this time of year. I like the vacation strategy. It's just like go away. <laughs> yeah. When I yeah. come back, Fe- baseball oh, Fe- will be back. February. No, fart noise. run out the clock. I think that, you know, at this time of year, you're focusing on the, the free agents and you're, you're taking a look at, at, you know, where they might go, but like exactly what, what sort of trajectory they're on. And, but also like you spend the entire season, especially the playoffs, focusing on what's going on like in the games and how players are improving and how you think that they're going to do. And, and so you get to take a little bit of a step back and say, take, more of a, a broader view uh, of what's what's happening in baseball and whether you want to take a look at you know the financial aspect or you know that all of those things are, are fair game I guess and when you don't have time to do them in the in the regular season so what do you both think about batting average underrated <laughs> um, <laughs> is it is it properly rated at this point you'll like, never so. believe what Jay said about this <laughs> so, playing the hits huh yeah. <laughs> Uh, Mike, you and I were both talking backstage about how we are statistically illiterate, and yet we do this job, basically. I'm an English major, you're a history major, and this is what we do. So I guess the question is, how statistically literate do you have to be to do this job, or how much should you know? What kind of mistakes can you make? And not just programming mistakes, but conceptual, logical mistakes? Well, I like to think we're a step above illiterate. <laughs> like that would be really bad. Um, what I do is I surround myself with people who are far smarter than I, right? So I, I might have an interesting question that I'm never going to be able to find the data for because I don't know enough code. And I'll go to, to Tom Tango or, or Jason Bernard or uh, Travis Peterson, who I'm saying because I know he's out here somewhere. And I say, yeah, I heard a clap. Very good. One and, clap. And I'm like, listen, I really want to know, like, how did this guy do in X and you know, condition Y, and someone will write up code for me. Um, I've never, I'm not a data scientist. I never pretend to be, but if I offer any value at all, it's hopefully to take this really complicated, dense data and explain it in a way that's both understandable and somewhat entertaining. And uh, if that works, great, but I don't think I could do it without the people I work with or the resources of like Baseball Reference or Fangraphs or, or Savant or any of this stuff. Yeah, I think that the, you have to have a certain level of trust and sort of figure out who you can rely on to um, sort of spit out things that that you can maybe not completely understand all of the, I don't know, insights, but that whatever number comes out, that you can, you can help people understand exactly what that might mean. You know, it, you don't have to understand the way a formula works in order to understand why it's important. I guess that leads to my next question, which is how did the two of you interact with more subjective data points? So like the 
you know, the prospect reports that uh, guys like Eric and Kylie write, how does that, it is data, it's a different kind of data, but it's still data. How does that factor into not just idea generation, but how you understand players and how you do your work? Well, I think, you know, part of this whole, you know, analytics is, is that when you don't see players, if you get enough of, you know, plate appearances or pitches or, or whatever it is, that you can understand what's going on, but a person who sees someone, they're going to know more about, you know, exactly what the, you know, how they might project and, and how they're going to do uh, when you don't have the data. Uh, because for a lot of, for a lot of players, you know, they're facing different competition, they're, you know, they're, they're in different leagues, they're a different age, and having sort of an, an eye on exactly what's going on is, is going to give you more information than 100 plate appearances. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I use it, I mean, it's information, right? Like, uh, I usually start with the numbers because that's what I do, but if I want to get more supporting evidence, I'll go to, to Kylie and Eric or, or MLB Pipeline or whatever, and the guys who have the eyes on these players that I've generally never seen, especially the prospects, and you'll see the report that says, oh, you know, this guy uh, has a great rise in fastball, and then the Hopefully the movement and the spin rate numbers align, and if it does, great. It gives me more confidence. And if it doesn't, then I've got something to dig into. You know, right. I kind of picture you at work, like rolling around in all the Statcast data, just like diving into it, like Scrooge McDuck. But somehow <laughs> that, you that accurate. That's true. <laughs> you emerge from it with articles and leaderboards and products and stats. And so I wonder what that roadmap looks like. And how do you decide what the next priority is and how do you refine it and how do you figure out this is how we're going to communicate what this thing is? Yeah, that is a, that is a great question and that is uh, what I thank spent... Thank you. Meg wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, Meg. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, I mean, my job is weird in that it's not the same job every day. Sometimes I will just go and spend eight hours being a writer and outputting some content. And sometimes we'll have you know meetings. Like tomorrow I have a meeting uh, with a couple of people who we want to try to figure out how to come up with a positioning metric. We don't have that right now. What teams do a good job of that? I don't really know how it would look. Like we'll talk about the way it might look. Um, but as far as new metrics go, it's generally me, uh, Tom Tango, Darren Willman, Jason Bernard, you know Travis, a couple other people, Ben Jedlovic, you know. And some of it's just, this is the obvious next step. Like for example, right now we have uh, an outfield defense metric. We don't have an infield defense metric. We have like 95% of an infield defense metric, but we're trying to figure out what do we call it? How does it work? What does it look like on Baseball Savant? It's not just coming up with the metric and writing about it. It's, okay, now how do we put it out there in a way that works? And then because I do work for the man, you know, there's a lot of other uh, business interests that are involved. It's like, okay, how does this get into a data feed where our partners can access it? And that's the super boring stuff I don't actually like very much. Um, but that is the difference between working for David Appleman and working for an enormous company. But there's a lot of people involved, you know? I call David Appleman the man. <laughs> Just call him David. What was the question? <laughs> I guess <laughs> we'll get to you in just one second. Don't you worry. I guess related to that, you know, um, any time that you're generating new metrics, there are going to be times that it works exactly the way you want it to. Uh, and there are going to be times where you have some missteps, which is part of how we figure out anything around us in the world. And I'm curious, like, what the experience has been for you guys when things haven't worked quite the way you wanted and how you approach iterating that versus just saying, you know, we're going to scrap this and go back to the drawing board and find something else. I mean, I know um, 
you guys had route efficiency and then you realize like this isn't working quite the way we expected it to we're gonna go a different direction so i'm curious how that process works for you guys see that one's a good one because i get to throw everybody else under the bus terrific right? <laughs> uh i didn't work there when route efficiency came out and tom no tom didn't and darren didn't and it was really like a day one stat uh, with a lot of people who are like well-meaning but you know we didn't have uh, data scientists for baseball at the point. We didn't have Tom and we didn't have like Darren and myself. And it was one of those things where it's like, this is a cool thing we can measure. I, I hope it works. And I think if you could go back to day one on 2015 uh, and do it again, it probably would have been looked at as more of a beta year than let's just throw everything against the wall on day one and see sure. if it works. Because you realize like it's one thing to measure something and it's like, is it meaningful? Is there context? Right, that's maybe the stuff we didn't do so great that first year, and that we put a lot more effort into doing now. So, for example, route efficiency didn't work because there's no context in the sense that a sometimes you don't want a good route, right? And every good route was between like 95 and 99 percent, which big deal. So that didn't work, and we kind of depreciated it and came up with something, uh, you know, catch probability and jump and all this other stuff. Um, but you're right, sometimes it works great. Uh, like sprint speed has worked reasonably well. We have the names we expect at the top and Albert Pujols is always at the bottom, so that works out pretty well. Uh, we haven't gone back to that one that much, uh, but every year at the end of the season, we like re refocus you know, expected weighted on base, all that kind of stuff based on what actually happened. Uh, baseball changes a lot every year, as you may have noticed. But yes, it, there's always like an iterative the process. You say the baseball all, changes yeah. every year? What's that? What? The baseball changes every year? I'm sorry? The baseball changes every year? <laughs> I still blame things that don't work at Fangraphs on Dave, and he's been gone for a while, so I'm sympathetic to that answer. So what are some of the big questions that are left out there to be answered, and also, I guess, to be answered by us, as opposed to people with teams, if there are any still, because there are certain data sources that we don't have that teams are putting to great use, but we just kind of look at and, and drool at from afar. So what's still left for us to, to figure out what teams should be doing and, and I guess also trying to figure out if it's actually going to make baseball better or worse because <laughs> it turns out that not everything makes baseball better even if it is uh, efficient. I mean, I think the interesting thing about how that works is there's only 750 you know, active baseball players. There'll be 780 you know, on opening day rosters and it, it shrinks uh, the, the talent level that, that, that we see and you know bit players are getting better and better and, and it's it's harder to figure out exactly you know how players are aging and, and how good player development is and so it's it's changing the way that, that we think about what, how players age and you know what what you need to do with player development whether you know you need to bring up players younger or you know 23 25 or I think that you know what we're trying to to answer is is what has changed between what we thought we knew ten years ago and what what's going to change uh, ten years from now. Like if if something in the CBA changes and we will have to rewrite all the things that we know in terms of player valuation, in terms of war. Like it, I don't I don't think that we can predict exactly how how baseball will change you know if they add two teams that completely changes you know where you're getting players from and, and I don't know, like how, how how it will work out that those are questions that we don't have answers to I think you asked uh, kind of two different questions there right like from a from a team perspective 
it's more about you know what you can track and how you can make players better. I feel like someone I know wrote a book about exactly that. And the gap has, has shrunk. Like, yes, are the Astros still better than the Tigers? Certainly, right? But is, is it by as, as much as it was a couple of years ago? Probably not. So I think you see teams. Is it because they built an MVP machine? Oh. <laughs> Paperback coming out next year. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so, I, I mean, there's still somewhat to be learned there, but I feel like the, we're not quite optimized and all that. But the fact that I use the word optimize is kind of distasteful to me. That's the other question is like, how do we get baseball back to being more entertaining? And I remember being on MLB Network with Brian Kenny in like, I don't know, 2014, even before StatCast. And we would joke like, yeah, hey, we're doing a great job of making baseball smarter. Uh, but is it better? Is it more fun? And the answer to that was like shrug emoji, you know? And I think, uh, all of the news events of recent days would kind of support that. So I do think there is a, a secondary and not necessarily team productivity priority that baseball still needs to work on. I guess if we could like focus in on a particular aspect of the game, setting aside optimization as sort of a concept, is there what is the um, area where you think we have the greatest work still to do? Is it, I mean, the obvious answer here feels like defense and you can say it's measuring and attributing defense in an effective way and that'd be a fine answer but where do we have the most work to do because I think there is this sense that you know teams don't really bunt anymore the Astros didn't issue an intentional walk until they got to the postseason like the optimization has pretty much run its course but we thought that we were pretty optimal a couple of years ago and there's still stuff to do so like what's the next thing that you're excited to engage with and measure I mean I do think it's just getting more granular in what you can measure like you said baseball is pretty optimized in a lot of ways but it's less about finding good players and more about how you make them better and some of the stuff we can measure and some of the stuff we can't like there's there's stuff that teams can measure you know in, in camps because they'll put wearables on the bat but stuff they can't do in the major leagues hopefully the technology will improve very shortly that will allow us to do stuff like that I mean we still think we know how each guy should swing but we probably don't you know JD Martinez is a great example a lot of guys who aren't JD Martinez that still feels like the next step to me I mean, we can get a lot better at stealing signs, I think. <laughs> wow. You know, wow. There's, there's some technological advances that I think would help out. Um. Are you trying to differentiate the two of you in terms of your outfits versus responses? <laughs> Heel turn. So I guess, Mike, we should ask you about broadcasting because you're a broadcaster now. And uh, Weird. It turns out that you're good at it and everyone likes it. And that's probably an area where things have changed since the early days too because I remember the first nerd casts and I don't know if this was one that you were involved in or not, but it was like the game was kind of on in the background, but we were just like not really talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> we were just it was talking like one about of our stats. Effectively wild, like Patreon. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> well, the, the the first one I was not involved with. It was like a, a just a bit wild or whatever they call it. Just right. Outside. It That's was like it was. the game was on a screen, right. but we'll just talk about stats while the game's well, going on. <laughs> now, I've done those too at MLB Network. And, yeah, and it's, it's hard. <laughs> now you call the game like regular broadcasters and. It seems like you don't go way out of your way to shoehorn in stats. You're obviously well prepared and you'll drop little tidbits, but mostly I think what people really appreciate about it is that it just seemed like there was a lot of enthusiasm for the game and a lot of excitement about what was going on in the field. So that was a big part of it, I think, even more so than just the numbers. But how do you prepare for a broadcast like that? 
uh, wildly over preparing <laughs> is the answer to that. I, uh, I appreciate the kind words and we had a lot of fun, but I do not consider myself a naturally skilled broadcaster. I don't have the experience and even now I speak way too quickly, you know, <laughs> but I'm supposed to be the guy who knows things. So I feel like I need to live up to that. You know, it's not good enough to just know uh, this guy's a good defender and he doesn't have much power. You know, I feel like I need to know at least like four things about each guy. Um, and then with the ESPN games, first of all, I was extremely formula, uh, fortunate to be put with Jason Benetti and Eduardo Perez, who I knew by reputation. I didn't really know them before I worked with them. And it turns out they are two of the greatest people on earth, baseball talents aside. They are just a lot of fun to hang out with. Uh, and I, I go back to, I think, something that you wrote where you refer to the term baseball grumps, which <laughs> I appreciated and I took to heart and I'm like, I don't ever want to be that. There are- you don't strike me as grumpy on those broadcasts. Oh, thank you. Um, there's a lot of problems with baseball right now. There are a lot of problems with baseball right now, but you can still appreciate in the context of a single game, uh, the athletes are amazing. I mean, the quality of play is super fun. And as far as stats go, it's a little different whether it's like a quote unquote nerd cast because then there's like a primary broadcast. So you, you have to set yourself apart. Um, but I also did some regular games during the season with, with like John Shambi. You don't go as deep. I don't think anybody cares about, you know, expected weighted run base, like even weighted runs created plus. I'm never going to talk about wins and RBIs because they don't tell the story. You know, most people in this room, I assume, would prefer WRC plus to OPS plus, but the difference is like it's not that much. Batting right. average. It's, it's making not going to be batting oh, average. No. It's no. never okay. going to be batting. Right. Is that your next book? <laughs> <laughs> the, oh, I can't wait. And anyway, I, I avoid it entirely, mostly, because I'll just say, this guy was 15% above average. I, I was watching a late season game um, for just random teams, and the local broadcast was like, this guy hit 285. He's had a really good offensive season. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy's not any good. And I looked it up, and he had like an 80 OPS plus. And it just comes down to, A, have fun. If you can't have fun, what are you doing here? And B, try to tell an accurate story, even if you don't go super nuts into the stats, because there's only so much time you have to explain it anyway. I think that, like, I mean, Jason's incredible. I I remember, I hope I'm not misremembering the timeline of this, but, like, there was a week where I saw Eduardo call a game, a major league game, and then immediately pivot to the College World Series. Yes. And I was just like, <laughs> how do you know all of the things? It's just incredibly impressive. Um, I think related to that, we, we have the benefit at Fangraphs, and Craig can speak to this, of being sort of in a bubble. You're all wonderfully informed about baseball, and we don't, you know, have to spell out war as wins above replacement and put it in parentheses before we use it. At MLB.com, you're writing for a slightly different audience, but Craig, you still have to think about balancing this. How do you guys think about balancing sort of the educational aspects of using advanced analytics versus just telling a story to the folks who are already bought into that? I imagine this comes up in broadcasting, but it still comes up in, you know, the work that you do at Fangraphs, so. Yeah, like my, if I go to a block party, my neighbors don't know what Fangraphs is. You know, it's it's still like, uh, We need you to get you a to hoodie. Be... <laughs> You, yeah, yeah, I mean, you have to be, you have to really love baseball, and then you know you want to, you have to, you have to want to learn a little bit more. And, and I think that when writing at Fangraphs, I think generally speaking, the audience, uh, you know, has an understanding. So, and you know, when I was talking about trust before, there, I think there's there's a trust that if I say someone is a bad defender or someone is a bad hitter, that people people will say, okay, I, I can go look at that player's page and, and understand that maybe, I don't need to say he has an 80 weighted runs created plus, I can just say he's a bad hitter. 
And you can't get bogged down when you're writing articles about including every single stat that, that, that somebody has. If somebody wants to look that up, they can, but otherwise you, you try to tell the story of, of what the player is doing as best as you can without getting completely bogged down in, in the numbers. Yeah, for me it's a little different because you know, I have this background you know, writing in fan graphs and it probably took me like two years to get over the culture shock you know, at MLB.com. Like, yeah, I bet. I, like I went there with sort of this idea in my head of like I'm gonna bring a piece of fan graphs to the masses, you know? And that works so much, it, it really, it gets tedious after a while to have to write a whole paragraph explaining what the stat you're trying to explain is. Sure. Um, so there's, there's some of that, but I, I feel like as time has gone on, you know, fewer people think RBIs are the story or that batting average is the story. So that's helped. And in writing for the, the masses, I've just tried to only go as deep as I need to to tell the story. Like if I'm trying to say this guy's a good hitter, um, I'm not gonna go into like the deepest stack cast stat. I'll say, oh, he's 10% above average, that works. Yeah, I guess, like, what is your perception of how analytically savvy, not the folks in this room are, we're all geniuses, but, um, <laughs> like, the average baseball fan, how, has that shifted in a mainstream kind of way, or do you think that it's still mostly my grandpa who's like, mm, RBI? <laughs> well, I hope so. We, uh, we turned off the comments, like, two years ago, which is great. <laughs> David, like... can we turn off the comments? <laughs> so... I mean, that's had somewhat of the effect of the people I hear from are the people on Twitter who are probably a little more biased to be statistical. I mean, I try to write these things in terms of my uncle, who is a Mets fan. Uh, he's a smart guy. He's a very successful lawyer. You know, he's a huge baseball fan, but he's not a statster. And I think of it like, if I'm writing something that I think he will understand and appreciate without glossing over, great. I mean, there are certain times where I can't tell the story I need to tell unless I'm like going into the deepest metric because it's the whole point. Sure. But, um, I think you know the the general appreciation of all baseball fans has risen over the last three, five, ten years. I mean, it has to. Every it's not just Fangraphs anymore. It's not just BP. Like everyone, mainstream outlets are using analytics. Yeah. So we're gonna ask them one more question, and then you're gonna ask questions. So I'm going to invite people to queue up at the mic if you want to ask Mike and also Craig questions. <laughs> and you'll have to differentiate them because they're wearing the same thing. So if you could answer any baseball question in your wildest dreams, and maybe your wildest dreams aren't about answering baseball questions, I don't know, that's okay too, but <laughs> if you can and you had any data that you could bring to bear and it could be something that we actually have or something that teams have or something that no one has, what would that thing be? I didn't think we were going to get to this question, so <laughs> I didn't prepare an answer, but I, I think that... If I could predict sort of owner behavior um, in terms of what would happen in the next CBA based on different changes, that's, that's the thing I would want to do the most. I, I think that over the past few seasons, we've seen spending sort of stagnate, and I don't know the best way to improve the sport and whether or not increased spending in free agency is the right thing to do. But I, I would want to know if we do X, Y, Z, or if this happens, how will owners and teams react in, in terms of spending on free agency if we made it you know, five years instead of six years, or arbitration was set at th this amount, or minimum salaries were, uh, I, for me, how the sport is going to go in the future um, based on the next CBA is the thing that I would want to know 
Um, and it's obviously incredibly hard to, to predict that behavior. If you figure out how to predict the future of baseball, we would be very interested in that at Fangrass.com. <laughs> I would probably uh, just, you know, gamble. Yeah. <laughs> That's a thing you can do now, yeah. apparently. Um, I would want to know if uh, Babe Ruth could really hit Adam Adovino. I think that would be fun. That's a good answer. If, if I could really go nuts, I would like a list of the headlines we missed of the last year and a half of potential Jeff Sullivan articles. I would really enjoy that. And I, I guess topically, I would like to know if Derek Jeter was actually a bachelor stuff. <laughs> All right. Is there a question about that? <laughs> uh, you know, like, but specifically. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I guess we will go to our question, Mike, and maybe turn the spotlight on so we can actually see the person asking the question. Hi. Hi. Um, how has writing about baseball for a living dulled or enhanced your baseball fandom? And I was thinking specifically about whether you ever, like, you're flipping through the channels late at night and you come across a baseball game, do you ever think... Ugh, work. <laughs> well, we, we both started out as team bloggers, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, yeah I did Cardinals. Dodgers. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, well, I guess there's two answers to that. One is yes. Like, uh, my job is not to focus on the Dodgers. My focus on the third teams. Part of it now is just having a family and living on the East Coast means I don't stay up for Dodger games anymore. Um, I still, I guess I consider myself a Dodger fan, maybe in the same way you consider yourself a I'd like to see them win a damn thing, you know? Um, I would also like to see the Mariners but, win a damn thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that's selfish. They made it the World Series a couple of times. Um, I, you know, I'm not as much of a Dodger fan as I once was, certainly. I just, you can't be if you have this. I don't know anybody who works in this kind of position who still considers himself. Maybe you do. Are you still a hardcore Cardinals fan? I mean, I, I, I you know, pay more attention to them. Yeah, I too. still like, hope that they win. Yeah. Um, I, I don't cheer when I'm in the press box because that's not allowed. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, we were really mean and made you go cover them in St. Louis to then. Yeah, they got, what, one hit over three days yeah. while I was there? That's, I was yeah, like, oh, rough. this will be so fun for Greg. He'll get to go cover a Cardinals postseason run. And then I was like, oh, no, I'm a really mean boss. I will still see the Dodgers when they come to New York. And if I'm watching a slate of West Coast games, I will still focus on them. But am I a fan anymore? Eh, not so much. I mean, I, I remember what I used to do. And honestly, for a large portion of my life, I thought I was just a lazy person. And it turns out there's just a narrow band of things that I gave a shit about. And <laughs> one of them is baseball. And so <laughs> being able to watch baseball on a regular basis has been incredibly you know, a fortunate opportunity for me. And, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's some days where it's work, you know, that's just, that, that's part of it. It's still work. That's why they, they pay you to do it. But on most days, it's I get to wake up and think about baseball and, you know, answer questions that I myself am curious about. Thank you for your question. Thank you. Okay, this is specifically more for Mike because you do the Top Ten Right Now series. Uh, how do you, when you're doing something like that, um, the best example I can think of is Bregman going into this year. Uh, how do you uh, weight it when there's a big difference between actual performance and expected performance on StatCast? Like, going into this year, Bregman was like second among third baseman in WRC Plus and like ninth among ex-WOBA. So how do you balance that out? 
That is a good and timely question because I just got an email like four days ago asking me to come back and do it again for next year. So um, that's a really, it's a good question. And I tend to look at it as who do I think will be the most productive in the upcoming season? And I think a big part of the difference for Bregman is he's got the short wall and left. And that's, that's not going to change. Whatever else might change with the Astros, I think that will still be there. Um, they, I mean, third base, obviously, is a ridiculously deep position. Like, I have my initial list of 10, and the next 10 could be a top 10 because they're all awesome. Um, he's probably going to be on top of it, mostly just because I know that'll annoy Rockies fans. Um, <laughs> uh, but to answer your question, I'm, I'm more interested in what the production I think will be. And sometimes I'll look at the underlying metrics and say, oh yeah, I think this guy's got more in him. Even if some of Bregman's home runs are what you might call uh, fortunate, he's still gonna get those next year and they, they're gonna count. They're gonna put runs on the board. Uh, so I'm not gonna take that away from him. That's a good question, thank you. Hi, thank you. Um, my question is, so, uh, <clears throat> you know, teams have obviously put in a ton of resources toward uh, finding and building better baseball players. Um, what do you think teams, or what, what, what are teams doing, or what do you think teams should be doing toward building more and more serious baseball fans? Um, I have a personal uh, interest in the answer to this question. I have two daughters and a son, and I would hate for any of them to fall through the cracks. So I would live with regret for the rest of my life. Um, I, I will actually answer a question. I think, like, for someone in your case, I don't have kids, but I would imagine making baseball affordable for people to actually go to in person, um, I think that's probably the most concerning thing to my mind. Ben Clemens and I are going to have a piece on this at Fangraphs when I get home from this trip. Um, but I, I think that's the most concerning idea to me for minor league contraction because it is an opportunity for fans to go see in-person baseball in a way that's affordable for a family. And so the idea that we would make that enterprise harder is really concerning to me. But I think the, the broader sort of macro answer for Major League Baseball is to have more competitive baseball teams. Because I watched a lot of like mid-2010 Mariners uh, and I'm weird, but a lot of people just didn't. And so, because um, apart from Felix, like that, that, those teams were bummers. They were bad bummers. I'm so, going to have to introduce you to Travis out there. He is a Mariners <laughs> fan. <laughs> so I think that um, fans don't expect to have their team win every day. I mean, I expected my team to win every day when I was a 2001 Mariners fan because that was a weird time. But like, you don't expect your team to win every day. But it means something really significant if they could. And so I think balancing that out so that fans can look around and say, well, yeah, we could be in this, even if they're not, if they can say that in a way that's reasonable, I think it makes a really big difference to their experience of the sport. I, I think exposure is the, the most important thing when it comes to fandom. I think that when we, when I think about, you know, when, when I was a kid, I didn't have cable and, you know, there was like a game a week and that was the game that, I would look forward to watching because it was actually on the TV and, and I could see it. And So if it's exposure to minor league games or making kids able to go to major league games on you know somewhat regular basis, I, I think that it's important to make sure that, that, that people, especially when they're young, because the, when they're young, that's, 
the 10 year old is the fan that turns into a fan of the 30 year old that's going to baseball games and and i think that making sure that you know whether it's like the facebook or the twitter feeds that the baseball has been doing over the, over the past few years those are the type of things that are important to make sure that there's still free or cheap access to to games so that that people can can learn about it and appreciate it because i mean i'm i'm biased but i think that when people watch games when people go to games they they fall in love with it yeah, I agree with both you guys, the cost thing especially. I took my son, who this summer was three, and my dad, and we went to a Mets game. And it was great. He had a blast. He has no idea who won the game, nor does he care. But you know what he remembers the most is we stayed afterwards because it was a relatively fast game, and he got to run the bases. And around second base, he got to high-five Mr. Met, which he thought was, like, the coolest thing in the entire world. You can't do that at every game, obviously, but that's sure. some of the value, I think, of the minor leagues is there's, as my wife likes to call them, shenanigans, which are valuable to a lot of people. <laughs> Mike, are you the one we should talk to about the blackout rules? Is that your... <laughs> well, I can say this. I have no input into how those work, but I'm sure I agree with 100% of you. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much you. for your question. Yeah. Uh, so, Mike, I was an MSTI reader from back in the day. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> Great to meet you, but Thank I you. think you can't comment on this. Um, Go ahead. So I think the sign stealing completely overshadowed the baseball conversation which as watching Will Smith's warning track fly out in my head over and over and over again, <laughs> makes me think like, is anyone talking about like testing the batches of baseballs before the season or anything like that? The conversation is just like stopped completely, right? Ben? Well, well, there are other things to talk about these yeah. days, I guess. <laughs> you replace one story with another, but I mean, the testing seems to be going on all the time. Obviously, I, I have no direct uh, insight into this, and I don't know if, if Mike does either, but uh, it's something that, you know, the, the panel that was convened last year that, that put out some findings about what was going on with the ball has been reconvened, and uh, my understanding was that they were getting ready to prepare something at the end of the postseason, and then the ball changed again, <laughs> which was... Uh, maybe kind of threw a wrench into things. So I think the last thing that Rob Manford said about it was that they would be taking some more time to study the matter and putting something <laughs> out uh, before next spring. So, you know, I, I think the, the messaging or lack of messaging has been frustrating at times for, for us and for many fans. And I don't think it's ideal that conditions keep changing the way that they do. So it would be nice if we could get that back under control. But from what I understand, no one seems to know exactly what's going on. No one's going to ask the commissioner a question about that right now, if you can get close to him. Well, I mean, he has been asked about it many times, and he always has an answer. <laughs> not always a great or satisfying answer, and not always the same answer. But I know that there are a lot of people who are studying those things, you know, and have a lot of expertise, and it turns out to be really difficult to figure out why the baseball behaves the way it does, which you'd think we'd have a pretty good handle on that after 150 years or so, but we have all these new ways to measure every aspect of it that we were just never even looking at before, and it turns out that all these tiny little changes can produce these very large changes, so I think people are still trying to get a handle on how this keeps happening. But, you know, hopefully we won't be talking about it ping-ponging one way or another for the rest of the foreseeable future. If only MLB owned the company that was producing the baseballs. 
Craig is if, our sass. If I've, learned, <laughs> if I've learned anything about this, kind of what Tabenja said, this has probably happened like 15 times in baseball history. We yeah. never thought about it. Mm -hmm. We haven't measured it quite the same way. That's a great question. Thank you. Yeah. Howdy. So, uh, you know, I think when StackCast was first being developed, there was, uh, I guess, a little bit of controversy about the idea of some of this public data or public saver metrics being put behind a black box. And, you know, on some level, it does feel a little bit like the discourse has gone from, let's say, 40 people arguing about their favorite version of war to like, oh, here are barrels. Um, and I'm just wondering both my view on the inside and those of you on the outside of MLB, how you guys feel about, let's say, the state of open data in uh, baseball right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. Like I said, a lot of, a lot of these decisions happened before I worked there, so I'm mm -hmm. speaking like third hand on some of this. Uh, but I do remember in like 2014 or whatever when the, the you know, introduction was made essentially that people were like, this is great. I remember Jeff, he was like, we're gonna call this OMGFX. It's gonna be great. Uh, but there, at the same time, people were worried like, oh, we're not gonna get access to any of this. That would really suck. Um, and I think what has happened has been kind of trying to walk the middle, like obviously exit velocity, launch angle, spin rate, all this stuff is out there and a ton of good analysis has been made from some of it. Uh, and then obviously the, the teams who essentially manage all of it, they own the company, um, they want to keep some of it private. You know, like, I, I appreciate that people think I have a private Slack channel with Rob Manfred, but I've, <laughs> I've met him like twice, you know? So in some of this, I, I don't have a lot of insight to offer other than we've tried our best to put out as, as much as possible, whether it's output metrics or raw data, uh, and we continue to put out more and more, and hopefully that continues in the future. We'll do one more, and then the two of you should be the, like, the first people for the next panel. That's the way that it should go. Yeah. Um, so with the teams and with certain subsets of the MLB fan base all having this like seemingly insatiable appetite for more data, uh, just gathering it however you can and knowing as much about everything that happens with baseball as possible, and this is like open to all four of you, at what point do you think that it becomes kind of unethical for there to be this much information collected about people who are, at the end of the day, just doing their jobs? Yeah, I think it's gonna be a major uh, bone of contention in the next CBA negotiation. We've seen other professional leagues be a little bit, um, I mean, there, there's a lot that you can say about the MLBPA's approach to the last CBA negotiation, but they actually did have some carve-outs for personal information and then also making sure that, you know, I'm not pointing at you, um, the <laughs> stuff. It's okay, I'm here. That, that stuff like StatCast wasn't used in arbitration, for example, because the data behind that isn't always transparent. Um, I think that it's a really tricky ethical question because on the one hand, it is uh, a big part of job performance for these guys. It is also incredibly personal and as we move toward medical data being tied into performance data, it's going to get even more personal. So I would imagine this is gonna be, you know, among the many, many things that the Players Association has to focus on in the next negotiation, this is gonna be a big part of it. Because like the NBA was way ahead of this stuff. And teams are sort of iffy in terms of what they want being public versus what they want private because they have an incentive for people to not know all the stuff about their guys. So that wasn't really an answer, but I think you're right to identify it as, a, as an area that we don't have a good answer for right now and we're going to need a better one. Thanks. Yeah, I, th I think that, you know, as long as it's, there's, 
you know, both parties have a say. That's the important thing, and that's what's going to happen in the next CBA. And like you mentioned, there was a carve out in the last one in terms of, you know, if a team gets this personal data, that the player also gets it as well. And as long as they're, as long as both parties go into the the situation understanding uh, exactly what's what information is being collected and what can be done with the information, then then I then I think that. As far as ethically go, it goes, I think that it, it's okay that both parties you know, agree to it. It's like Sam said, the next frontier for baseball analysis is philosophers. That's what we're <laughs> right. gonna need for this. Um, thank you both. I'm sorry for making fun of you matching. Uh, let's give a round of applause to Craig and Mike. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Oh, Kylie, I didn't even have to play the reggaeton horn. Yeah, come on out. Hey, guys. They're very sassy. Hello. Hello. This is Fangraph's Unplugged, the Prospect Edition. Um, Guys, introduce yourselves. I'm Kylie McDaniel. I'm one of two Prospect guys. (laughs) I'm Eric Longenhagen, the second Prospect guy. Thank, okay. thank you. You're, yeah, you're welcome. We, we were recently surgically removed from one another. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple people have asked, like, you guys aren't literally joined at the hip. What's going on now? Yeah, I was like, well, well, I mean, you have to go to games in different states, so that wouldn't work so well. Um, we're going to get to the panel proper in a second, but the audience here knows you as guys who were recently surgically removed from one another. If you ask some of the commenters, I might be a woman. But Oh, yeah, they're concerned. Do you want to talk about which organs each of us got? <laughs> Not specifically. <laughs> <laughs> feels like a feels like an after panel kind of. Special. The kid's gone, so. I guess that's true. Um, hot start, hot start. Hot start. We will go into another thing, which is that Eric is our lead prospect analyst. Kylie is our other prospect analyst, and also kitchen enthusiast. But you two are about to add another title to your uh, resume, which is published, Fired. Oh. published <laughs> book author. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about future value, you guys. We got a big announcement. You're getting a. Breaking news. Eric and I wrote a book called Future Value. We finished it this morning. Woo! Yeah. Thank you. They, uh, the publisher told us to stop sending them words. <laughs> we, That's not a, that, we're not kidding. We had, a, we had a contracted word count. We started creeping above. He goes, oh, we've got like a maximum word count and we're now 20,000 past that. They were like, we're so surprised. I was like, I had to do your raise list. I am not surprised. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they have to publish the book in such a way that like the spine of it is <laughs> thicker than their normal publishing process. It, it comes with a magnifying so glass, please, but yeah. you, you'll get all the words. So yeah. that's what we're that's what we're dealing with now is like how badly will it be hacked apart um, so that it can fit inside like the book. Yeah, so you, you wrote a book. It is yes. called Future Value. I'm oh, just, that's right. Yeah, we're yeah. supposed to try to sell. You're supposed to talk about the book. Yeah, yeah. What's it about? Oh, um, it's the way I've been describing it for like months now is that it's it's like Kitchen Confidential, but a, but scouting baseball. Um, we've each we each have a little over a decade in the game in some capacity now, uh, so it's very experiential from as far as the stuff that we're writing about from our experience, and then we also, there are a lot of like scout stories. There are infinite numbers of scout stories. Um, and so there are you know dozens of those in the book, and it is like sort of a best practices, you know, like we, we 
outlay, like where, what the state of the industry is now uh, and where it might be headed. And some of that is fatalistic, um, but, but it's hopeful, I think. You know, we, yeah. we make an argument for scouts in the book. Yeah, it's. I think we had a lot of bases where originally, like the um, the publisher was sort of suggesting some ideas, like oh, it could be like a follow up to Moneyball. Like people thought after Moneyball, like scouts are going to get cut out and numbers are going to take over, and actually, kind of the opposite happened. And they're like, oh, now with like TrackMan and StackCast and these sorts of things, that is actually happening a little bit, and nobody's really written about the interaction between like the um, the tension between those two things and sort of how we got here in recent years, how it's going to go in the future, what people behind the scenes are saying, but like off the record, because you can't really get like an R&D director with the team to tell us like, hey, here's how we do metrics and how, try to cut scouts out of the process. <laughs> but we know a lot of these guys, and so they'll tell us if we don't put their name on it, and not a ton of people are like, sort of have some experience in both the scouting area, here's how to scout, here's how you run a scouting organization, here's what the Astros were doing, which we thought would be a lot of anonymous sources and now it's all public stuff, but <laughs> they're doing some stuff, guys. Um, but yeah, so, and, and so just like going through all that and then when we're writing about like how to scout things, like we talk to scouting directors about like, how would you recommend we write about this? And they give us stories and we ended up with like probably too many stories about like, I got in a fight with a guy in a draft room and like, you know, we, that guy was not my friend anymore and then I drafted Roy Halladay and I'm just like, wow, I didn't realize there was that good of a story about that. I'm kind of curious what you guys think about the fate of scouts. We are so steeped in it that the paranoia is, you know, coming through the other side of our phone every day. So, I mean, you dealt with Houston for an extended period of time, and they were sort of the first ones to decide, you know, screw it, we're, we're going to take this approach. Uh, it seems to be spreading to other places now. You can guess where. Milwaukee fired a bunch of scouts. David Stearns is a former uh, Houston Astros AGM. Orioles. <laughs> yeah, the Orioles had a lot of turnover. Probably don't have the infrastructure to get rid of scouting at this point. Like the information infrastructure needs to be in place before you can start doing that without sacrificing seeing players. Uh, but I, what do you what do you guys think? Like, are we looking at a scoutless baseball sometime in the like during the course of our lifetimes as we're like living in some sort of nuclear apocalypse? There are also <laughs> no scouts. There still is baseball, but no scouts. Yeah. And, and will we still have jobs? But <laughs> follow up. Go, Before sorry, go ahead. you answer that question, or I do, we will do this bit of business. Where can people pre-order your book, you guys? <laughs> I didn't. Oh, edit. I saved the URL on my yeah, phone. Yeah, I didn't yeah, it do is, it. It is a com slash future value. We have a special coupon code that we will put in the. Yeah. Uh, well, I know what it is now. I, I found oh. it. It's FV20. You can get twenty percent off the book if you pre-order it. Which is now on the end of the year. The book, which is called Future Value. <laughs> It has a subheading. I forgot what it is. Yeah, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it involves, they told us it was good. Yeah, it, it, one half of the subtitle is the battle for the soul of baseball. Which there I you go. That's really, the important really, half. Okay, really now Ben can catchy. answer that question. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people... Have, are, we, are we good pitchmen? Is that what just happened here? Is we're like professional? You have oh, months like, to practice this pitch yeah. for the yeah, book, gotta, so... Clearly the first time we've done yeah, it. You gotta get it. You just finished it this morning. Yeah. I, I think yeah. you're doing fine. <laughs> it's the old Charles Manson had his parole hearing and he's in the mirror like... Charles Manson. Definitely talk Emerson about, Drywall. Definitely talk about the Manson family every time you talk well, about the book. It'll get better. Yeah. It'll, this is clearly going to get edited out of the podcast. It's a gift for you guys. But. Yeah, no. Well, I think people have been predicting the demise of scouts for a while, right? And there are more of them than there used to be. They keep multiplying. So it's only in the last few years, I guess, that there's really been any sign of that 
doom that people have been foretelling for them that it's actually happening because you kept opening up more and more markets for them, right? And those markets didn't have TrackMan yet, and so you needed a scout there. And so I don't know when we get to the point where every school, every college, every high school has a TrackMan. and Every ev- scout's carrying a mobile unit, so <laughs> right. where you are, you have that. Yeah, stuff. right, and every international player just goes to a facility where all that stuff is wired up, and so you would think that at some point, maybe it can't support the same number of scouts that it's been supporting without all of that technology. I mean, teams will always pay lip service to like, well, we need to get to know the players and we need, you know, makeup, intuition and all that. And that's certainly important, but I don't know that that was ever easy to predict anyway. There have been a lot of good makeup guys who probably didn't actually have good makeup. So it's tough, I guess, to add value when a lot of the things that you used to write in a scouting report now are just automatically generated. I think that that part is true, but I also think that we're in a moment where teams want more and more data, and that's what scouting generates. How you interpreted the tools that you use on top of that, how analytically savvy those people are is going to vary. The number you might have of you know cross-checkers might decrease, but it seems like there will always be space for someone who can tell you, this is what that Fucking, that kid's not here anymore. This is what that fucking curveball looks like, right? Did, did you have him removed? <laughs> I think his dad was disappointed. He really take the governor off this <laughs> thing, yeah. I would also say Maybe he was overserved. And for anyone that thinks like, oh, things are already going too far, like there's teams getting rid of scouts, it's like, well, the team that just won the World Series is like one of the most aggressively non-progressive teams there are. And if we, you know, there are teams like, I think Tampa Bay that is like perceived as a very progressive team. And we know of instances where they should have made a trade on paper and decided not to because of a guy's makeup. So it's like, there are teams that are still doing this. And I would almost say that uh, when the time comes that you think all 30 teams are actually disregarding scouts completely would be the best time to do it. So it's obviously always going to exist at some point and it's always going to be a part of the uh, various teams' processes. But some teams are like actively trying to cut it out as a way to be more efficient, sometimes to then spend money other places, sometimes to just be efficient for efficiency's sake, which then gets you bad PR, which gets you worse data, which then eventually will catch up with you. So there is like, if you go off sort of the deep end of trying to turn it into like the most corporatized thing on earth, it seems like it would sort of eat its own tail and kind of all the efficiency you're chasing you to lose it. It's an Ouroboros. That's what the word is, Kylie. <laughs> I am smart and I know what that means. There you go. It's a little editor note from me to you. Plus you need scouts to steal signs from the dugout, as we've learned. It's the human element, really. It really brings the charm to cheating. Do you want me to do the list question? Sure. All right. So we're not going to... the crowd. Yeah, so we're not going to get to the Mets and Yankees lists at Fangrass for a while, although we did kick off our list coverage this week, so go read those. Um, but if you each had to pick a guy for both the Mets and Yankees fans here who they should be excited about but maybe don't know that much about yet, who who's on your radar? So... My two would be, man, the Yankee system is very deep, and there are, there's a lot of interesting young Latin American talent in the system. Uh, there's a shortstop that they got uh, from Cuba, Alex Vargas, who was originally supposed to sign a deal with Cincinnati. They had agreed to, I think it was like th- $3 million. Um, and But the, because the Reds were in the penalty box from signing uh, Cubans the year before, they had to, or two years before, they had to wait. Cuban players. Cuban players. The... <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> and uh, so they had it. to wait, right? So they said, okay, we have $3 million for you, but we have to wait till the following July, even though you're eligible in this one. The Yankees traded for pool space, offered him $2.5 million, and he took it, and now it looks like he's going to be a star. Or he, at least he has a chance to be. This is the guy who scouts who were in the Dominican for um, like extended spring training or in Florida for extended spring training and then saw him for a little bit in the DSL before he came to the GCL. This is like the first guy... Uh, my first name out of their mouths. Uh, Brian Cashman, at the GM meetings, I asked him specifically about this group, uh, the Kevin Alcantara, uh, the Gulf Coast League group, the rookie ball kids, and Vargas is the only name he mentioned, uh, as having, like, specifically teams were asking for him already last summer as, like, a 17, 18-year-old. Which is uh, probably what, like, if he's in the draft, he'd be, like, top 20 picks, like, 10, 10 to 20, something like that? Yeah, I think so. I, I think... Nassim Nunez went in the 40s, and he's better than that guy. He's so. much... Right. Yeah. So, so he's basically, like, a first-round pick. So that's my uh, Yankees guy. And then the, the Mets uh, prospect is also is from here. He went to Holy Cross High School in, uh, in Flushing. Uh, his name is Jalen Palmer. He was at Kingsport this year, 6'3". Uh, you know, like the young Jason Worth sort of uh, Cameron Mabin build, uh, but at shortstop. Had a growth spurt late in high school. Teams weren't really on him, signed for. I think it was 200K in the 22nd round. He had a good year at Kingsport, and there's like real juice for someone who's who was like billed as raw coming out of high school. I don't even think he had a college commitment. I don't think there were even colleges properly on this guy. And um, but he was had a breakout year at, at Kingsport. So you know, those are my two. Uh, for the Mets, I would say Brett Beatty was their first round pick. So if you're like an intense uh, Mets prospect fan, like this probably isn't super surprising. Uh, but I, he was an interesting guy for this past draft because he was uh, over 19 on draft day. And that is like traditionally, uh, well, progressive teams or teams that use like a model will say that like age for high school hitters is like a huge variable. Or if the guy's 19, move him down a ton. If he's 17, move him up a ton. Uh, and this guy was 19. But there's an argument to be made that he was the best high school hitter possibly in the last couple years. He might be plus hit, plus plus power, play third base. Uh, and when I went to see him this past spring, uh, he's at a big powerhouse high school in Austin, Texas, uh, that Baker Mayfield and uh, some other football players are from. Um, he was playing basketball. He came out late. And so you had to go in, you know, a couple weeks after the season and started to see him play. And I saw him walking around and he's like 6'3", 230. And you're like, this guy cannot play third base. And then you watch him in infield and you're like, oh, this guy's got really quick feet. Like he, playing basketball has really helped him a lot. And after talking to scouts, they're like, yeah, this guy can probably play third base for like at least the next five, six, seven years while he has this level of athleticism. And if he could be, you know, 60 hitter, 65 power, play third base, this guy is, you know, could be Nolan Gorman. He could be all those different sorts of third basemen that are just kind of cruising through that are high in the top 100. Uh, but because he's 19, he kind of has to do it a little more quickly. He's a little more like a college player. So he's a guy that you can sort of, we'll give you permission to scout the stat line. If he's hitting well uh, in full season ball next year, you, you're allowed to be excited. And if he's not, then, you know, Mets are Metsing. How about Yankees? <laughs> uh, Yankees, I would say, uh, you mentioned Vargas uh, and Kevin Alcantara. I think Alcantara is really exciting. I have said that he's what everyone thought Lewis Brinson would be, just like 6'4 center fielders, huge tools. He's like 18. He has like insane body control. He would probably be playing football in the SEC if he was American. Uh, the guy I'll bring up is also uh, Michael Escato, who played in the DSL this year. He's 17. He would be another guy that would probably go like late first round if he was in the draft this year. Uh, some guys with the Yankees have compared him to Martin Prado, which is not like the most exciting like MVP level guy in the world. But this guy signed for 300K, and now he has like real trade value, and teams are interested in him. And he's sort of a hit first, can play everywhere in the infield, great instincts, everything's average to above. He's performing. Uh, he's a guy that I think will sort of 
the guy that traditionally I think we would be a little lower on that doesn't have huge tools, isn't huge physically, and now since we have sort of like, you know, how often they hit the ball hard, things like that, that we can quantify, guys would really good feel like a Jose Ramirez type early. This guy's a lot of those markers that I think he'll be rising on uh, other lists, but you can read ours and see that he's good now. So you were just talking about how the Nationals are at one end of this spectrum of traditional to analytically oriented, and then the Astros are maybe at the other end. And obviously you can win both ways, it seems like. So since we're in New York, I guess, tell us where you would put the Yankees and Mets on that spectrum. But also, are the opposite ends of that spectrum getting farther apart? And what does the distribution across 30 teams look like? Well, the Mets are certainly moving closer toward uh, the progressive end of the spectrum. Uh, they've hired more analysts than they've had in the past. Um, so that's happening. What they're going to do on the pro scouting side, I'll be interested to see. For the last several years, they've had no one scouting the lower levels of the minors. Uh, you can see it in the history of the trades. I someone laughed. That's unfortunate. <laughs> um, it's, no, I mean, it's true. If you're a Mets fan. Yeah, like, I don't see any Mets people on the, uh, the backfields of Arizona, so, and they haven't traded for anyone beneath full season ball for quite a long time now. Uh, so I think, I think that they're going to start adding uh, scouting down there. It's important to just have background on guys, even if you're not uh, acquiring them. So I think that stuff is coming. I've talked, we talked to people about this recently, like for the book, because we do have all 30 teams on like a matrix in the book of where they are on the spectrum and how successful they've been at it. And specifically within the last couple of weeks, I've had, I had some, a front office person with a very progressive team uh, say the Mets need to be further to this side of the spectrum. The changes that they've made recently uh, dictate that. The Yankees are, are way, way uh, up in the upper right corner of that spectrum where they've had a ton of success. They're one of the best organizations in baseball. I think we both think they're the best. Yeah, we've been told, I, I was specifically speaking with some amateur scouts that are sort of bemoaning the fact that they're getting squeezed out of the game, and I go, who's the best team to work for? And this is a guy that's never worked for the Yankees, and he goes, oh, the Yankees, that's, that's the team you want to work for. Yeah, so the, <laughs> like, another front office executive told me that they have like many times more analysts than most other teams. They're just uh, hired as consultants, so they don't have to be listed on like a, a, a role uh, of employees. So um, there's more going on behind closed doors with the Yankees than even people know. So I don't know, the, the, the interesting question that I don't quite have an answer to, I don't think, not, not off the top of my head was, is it becoming more polarized? Well, I, I think teams are more aware of the spectrum because I think 10 years ago it was like Moneyball happened, oh, we're, we're all aware <laughs> of this, we've like chosen our positions. And now like, uh, I think I've mentioned before, like there is a, um, there was a high-profile scout with a team who was asking me, like, hey, you know, drafts in a couple months, like, what do you got? We're going through players. And I was mentioning, like, uh, talking about Brett Beatty. I was like, oh, this guy's, you know, because of the age, like, a lot of progressive teams aren't going to like him. And he goes, yeah, we don't care about that stuff. And I go, why? And he's like, you, he's like, don't tie it to me or say it's this team, but we're anti-lytics. And he was, like, <laughs> very proud of it. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> they made a word for it. Yeah, they, and he, it seemed like he had workshopped it and was like wait, waiting for applause. They have, like t they have internal T-shirts yeah. printed up. So like now I know time. what the response was to that laughter. Um, I will say no one told us during the course of like as we were circulating this spectrum of teams, no one said, oh, they should be further to the left. Yeah. Except for, I think, Texas. I think there's definitely teams that are perceived as traditional that are 
behind the scenes making moves that and then you'll sort of see like oh on Twitter they hired a bunch of hitting guys that have been on Twitter that are like very progressive in that way and they hired a couple analysts and we'll hear about it six months after they did and then we'll see a trade they made and like I think Detroit was one of those teams where we thought they were all the way to the end of uh, traditional and they we have started noticing like seeing high-speed cameras and like uh, scouts uh, doing different things and like they're having a pitching lab and like they seem to have like fixed Casey Mize in a way that um, so some teams may not have been able to and you're like alright well they clearly have like the fruits of it even if they're not like seen as like popular uh, among the teams that are progressive but they're like actually making moves in that way and like Cincinnati just hired like all the driveline guys it's like alright they're wh wherever they land in terms of like success or exactly what they're doing they are clearly trying to move in that direction or sort of uh, get the cream of the crop or like the benefits from moving in that direction when they were not in the past. I'm curious then when, so you have a perception of particular teams being traditional to progressive, good at certain parts of scouting, player development. Where does that come into your evaluation of prospects, right? When guys move from one organization to another, like now this pitcher is in the Yankees organization, do you sit there and say, oh, I'm going to throw 100 pretty soon? And where do you think that should factor into your analysis? So we get asked this all the time. Uh, I ask you this question a lot of the time. <laughs> well, it happens in chats too because it's also like, oh, the Yankees have so many people in their prospect class. Is it because you, because they're the Yankees? Like you just give them more guys because they're popular? It's like, no. Like the idea is if this guy gets traded, he'll have the exact same ranking with another team. You have to treat them independently. But what we've said is if a team that has a long track record of being able to make adjustments and improving players in a specific way, like the Dodgers have like a very specific mechanical thing that they'll do right. with guys with their swings that Cody Bellinger does and Max Muncy did and all these other guys have done before, if they take a guy that we think has the potential to make that change and then it looks like he made it, then we'll move him a little more quickly than we would with a team that has no track record of doing this. So it's not necessarily that they get moved up because they're with this team, because if it hasn't happened yet, it, it's not a thing. But if they do it, we're like, oh, this is probably going to stick because they've done this before. Right, it is one of the things that separates, it's an important separator between what we're doing and what a scout or a scouting staff does. That, you know, you, if you're a scout, you're projecting what the player would be if you were on your team with your player development staff and we don't have one. Uh, and so we have to... Yet. Right. <laughs> don't limit us. We've never talked about this, but this is interesting. Um, it's healthy to talk about it. I'm really stressed. <laughs> Can you guys hold on for like another 45 minutes while <laughs> Kylie and I... No, no, but um, it ideally is not a thing we consider just for the sake of a sort of neutrality. But for it, it's truly some of our subconscious is like, oh, Jaron Kendall was drafted by the Dodgers. We're more optimistic about him getting what was a swing issue in college that was undermining incredible physical tools. Right. We're like Sorted more optimistic. Yeah. Um, and so we do, we probably to some degree... Um, but some of it is just that the teams are better at targeting those players anyway. Like those there, players are talented. There's also a suggestion if we're worried that Jaron Kendall for Vanderbilt is not going to hit and then the Dodgers take him in the first round, it's like, oh, maybe he has some quality we didn't know about. If a team that usually fixes guys sees fixable qualities in this guy that we didn't see before, you won't necessarily move because of that. But we're just sort of – you pay a little closer attention when that happens because it's – an unexpected thing happened, and so you just sort of like, let me keep an eye on that guy, and I'll check his stats a little more often than the other guy. Do you want to tell the Jaron Kendall story? Go ahead. <laughs> uh, a scout had an in-home meeting with Jaron Kendall and asked him what his, like, what he was passionate about, and most... Pretty standard, like, boilerplate questions, like, just going right. on the list. He's I like, like if you baseball. If you baseball, what would you be doing? Uh, men's fashion. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, a lot of people interested in men's fashion here don't find that uh, funny. That? At, well, like a lot of scouts were just like, "What? 
we're out. Bad makeup right there. That's it. They were done. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> I love the idea that like the length of the Yankees list is what's driving clicks to the Yankees list and not the fact that it's just the Yankees based on the guy who had like I'm going to quote rings ready to go over there. Um, so is there a team that's on the verge of joining that group of teams that you were both just mentioning, like, oh, I need to pay attention to this player because this team just drafted this guy? I think uh, Minnesota in general has been doing, like, a lot of smart things. Well, things we would do, which I'm going to grade as smart things. Like <laughs> smart. Okay. Yeah, yeah you're, smart. Get, you're getting the book wrapped down now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. Uh, yeah, so like they, they with the, the new group of uh, Derek Falvey and Thad Levine, they've now been, sort of been around long enough, like we're saying Baltimore, they haven't put down the infrastructure to necessarily do everything they want to do. Minnesota's now had that time. Obviously, at the big league level, they have more success than maybe their payroll or their like pedigree would suggest. And there are, are things underneath the surface in terms of like player development, guys they've been improving, people they've been hiring, processes, things like that, uh, where it seems like they're moving in that direction, um, where they can sort of be one of those teams where if they take a guy up high that we didn't like, we'll be like, what did we not know about this? guy yeah so cincinnati and san francisco on the player dev side uh, uh baltimore and um atlanta and where else is the astros dna where else is that gone on like the analytics side arizona on the like um in-game management stuff the stuff that the rays are doing with matchups in the middle of a game depending on game state altering your personnel prioritizing um, positional versatility on the big league roster. That's a very Arizona thing now. Yeah, I'd say if we're trying to make a list of the teams that are perceived as some level of traditional, not all the way at the progressive end, the teams that are moving in that direction, those are the ones that seem to be getting like results and doing it in like the, the way that most agrees with how we and people we talk to tend to think. Okay. So I'm curious, we had a question about the, the state of the baseball itself earlier, and so I'm gonna ask the two of you, how has the uncertainty around what the future liveliness of the ball is gonna look like affected player evaluation for the two of you, but also on the team side to the extent that it has? They have more information than we do in terms, like we'll get some average exit velos, some spin rates, things like that to give us like an idea of where someone stands in the general hierarchy. They're obviously gonna have stuff on every single pitch. And so I think they can probably pinpoint the kinds of guys that are um, benefiting more from whatever it is the baseball's doing. Sure. Uh, they probably have obviously more trackman data in AAA to tell how that ball may or may not be different or how the parks or the pitching may affect that. Um, so I think the teams that we think are the smartest, this gives them another variable to be smart with and make, continue to make good decisions, whereas I think we probably, would, uh, Eric and I, would fall more where the uh, more traditional teams would be. They're not as good at this because we, we both either don't have the information or don't know what to do with it. We're just like, yeah, it's more home runs. So I guess we'll just like make home runs less important in our evaluation when it's in AAA, and otherwise we'll wait for someone to tell us we're wrong. There's probably a weird layer of hitter like that exists in some Goldilocks zone that has been helped by that extra couple feet of mm -hmm. fly ball distance. We don't know who those hitters are. Um, it has made evaluating stats at AAA, right? So towards the upper levels of the minors, traditionally the thinking is the level of talent is more uniform. You can trust the, the statistics a little bit more, uh, but the, the ball changing there has, has made that hard. We just don't have that innate feel for what a good stat line in the PCL is 
anymore because it is so drastically different now that the ball was made different there. It, it also, I mean, we're talking mostly about hitters, but I think it's also given us trouble with pitchers. Pitchers, yeah. The Arizona list, and we're like Taylor Widener. We thought he was really good. He his like sort of command and stuff kind of backed up, and then he was also in AAA and got whacked around. And we're like, all right, did he get a little bit worse or a lot worse, or was it the baseball? And with that change in the big leagues or in AA, like we can't really square where he is exactly. And I think having like comprehensive AAA. Um, uh, Statcast or even TrackMan data, which we don't have, would probably shed some light on like where he is on the spectrum of like how much is he at fault and how much was he like um, the knocked the around of, by the ball, yeah, basically, the of like some bad circumstances. Yeah. yeah, this was the minor league leader in strikeouts two seasons ago, who had an eight ERA last year. Mm. Not a great trajectory. So, you talked about seeing high-speed video and high-speed cameras show up all around the game, and you two have been taking high-speed videos yourselves. So. Not of ourselves. We no, I mean, I've t- not I on the internet at least. Not for public but, consumption. Yeah. Continue. <laughs> so how has that changed how you evaluate players? What do you look at differently? What can you see that you couldn't see before? Well, so we've been taking it from the open side of hitters, right? So you can see the swing mechanics. And our thought initially was that we'd be able to, to try to calculate, because we know the frame rate of the cameras, right? And you know how wide the plate is. Uh, and so in theory, we, we were hoping to calculate uh, exit belows in places where we ordinarily wouldn't be able to uh, bat speed, which is really just like an angular velocity calculation. Um, spin rates too. Uh, we've had trouble doing some of it because there is uh, degradation as the ball approaches the plate of the rate of spin. Uh, we haven't figured out how to account for that yet. The things that we have learned are who is good at spinning the baseball in a way that where the seams are uniform, which is important. Um, spin axis, we've seen, uh, we'll be able to see that and sort of, it's just helpful visually to see the importance of that. We knew it was important because that's a thing that can be measured. Uh, and teams have been targeting pitchers with a certain range of spin axes uh, for a little while now. Yeah, like we'll text each other like, oh, I just saw this guy that we know is 94-96, but he's got like perfect backspin on his fastball because he just changed it, so our off-season data didn't have that. Oh, I bet these teams are probably interested in him, and oftentimes you'll check with those teams. They'll be like, yeah, he has improved a lot. How did you guys know? Or like the little camera with the pictures. <laughs> and then on the, uh, the hitting side, it's, we've noticed, and this is just purely visual, that hitters are missing because of location all the th- it's always because of location, not timing. Uh, so when hitters are swinging and missing on the high speed, it's just so much easier to see that they are on time, but the ball usually vertically is, is where they're missing. And, and like so, so much of this is so intuitive, right? Like if you're swinging a bat this way and a ball's moving either one of these two directions, it's not gonna hit the barrel if it's moving effectively in one of those two directions. I can't believe no one thought of this. <laughs> We had to have like thousands of dollars of uh, equipment to tell us these things. <laughs> Who are the ad wizards that came up with this one? But if the ball moves like this, there's still bat there. And so don't, don't acquire pitchers whose balls move like this. This is the approach these brilliant teams have begun to take. I would also say there were... <laughs> Kylie, I noticed you wore your scout pants. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm feeling fancy. Um, another thing I found is uh, because the you know when you zoom in the lens gets kind of long, I get a lot of scouts making fun of me, which I don't like. Um, <laughs> but after they make fun of me, a lot of times we won't be able to tell what pitch a pitcher is throwing. If it's you know is it a curveball, is it a slider? And you see, usually you can look at like the movement and the speed and have an idea of what the movement tells you, but you can't see the grip. And the way the move or the way the video works is when you take it, it then renders on the screen. So you can watch it while the next pitch is coming. You can be like, oh, he releases it like this. And there was, when I was watching Team USA, where there's a pitcher from Minnesota, Max Meyer, they'll probably go in the first or second round this year. And he was throwing this like cutter at like 90. And everyone's like, well, he's throwing 95, so that's probably a four seamer. And then the cutter, I guess he's probably just like holding like a cutter going like this. And then we notice when we're just like watching it rendering on the camera that he's like, he's spiking his knuckle. So he's throwing like a spike curveball, but he's throwing it like a slider. So he's throwing a spike slider, which no one had ever heard of. And all the guys behind me are like, what's a spike slider? That's not a thing. You're just making it up. Like, I'm just some idiot. And I go, here, look at it. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's a spike slider. And I'm like, <laughs> they, didn't Thanks, see your, guys. they didn't see your scout pants, so they didn't take you seriously. They don't know the, um, yeah. There's a level of authority that comes with this. I'm into men's fashion. Oh. <laughs> very good. Very, very good. Okay, so we're going to go to Q&A in just one or two minutes. So if people want to queue up and give preference to the two folks who couldn't ask their questions. But, um, oh, they're ready. Oh, good job, guys. Um, we can't let you guys go without talking about the biggest news in the minors, which is realignment, constriction, the, the proposal that MLB has put forth to radically change the organization of the minors. Um, I think we all recognize that there are some issues with the way that the minor leagues are currently constituted. This proposal is very radical. This is a much longer question. We could probably do an entire panel on this, but in two minutes. <laughs> If you could uh, reimagine the minors, would it look like what MLB is proposing, or would it look very different? What's your take on this? There's a case to be made that they are are doing some things that would be beneficial for some of the stakeholders in this. Um, obviously, a lot of these places that they have earmarked are ones that are not making a ton of revenue, and this is while they are subsidized by the owners. So, like, they're paying for all the players, and these teams, a lot of them are still not making money. So, like, this is not a viable business. Now, that being said, a billionaire is subsidizing a thing that people want to exist. That doesn't mean you should stop subsidizing it. So it doesn't mean just because it's not a viable business, like, you know, corn subsidies and whatnot, some things get subsidies. It's fine. But there is also an argument to be made that there are more players, drastically more players in the minor leagues than have a chance to make the big leagues. There would be a case to be made that there should be fewer slots in the minors to then concentrate your resources onto the players that really have a chance. And then that would spring up a more robust independent league system where those long shot players can go. But again, if some of these you know, small Appalachian towns that are not viable businesses unless they're subsidized, if they become independent league teams, now they have to pay the players, which they clearly couldn't do. Right. And then player pay goes down even more. And it's like, well, that's probably not great either. And so then you're just sort of like, well, you could do a cold economic thing. This is helping the owners. And it might be good for baseball. And then it's like, pretty clearly bad for fans and also might be bad for baseball so you can kind of argue either side and i think there's gonna be a bunch of unintended consequences if it happens this way but i also think this is probably a we're gonna leak what is a pretty extreme plan and sort of see what people think and then we'll do a more moderate plan it'll seem like we're the heroes that like took our foot off the accelerator and saved some stuff i generally agree with kylie but thank you as uh, we can't really see out there has anyone uh here worked for a minor league team by round of applause is anyone Okay, so there are some of you. Uh, so I worked for the Phillies AAA affiliate for a number of years, and um, like I, I do think we should avoid 
discussing publicly like minor league teams as if they're mom and pop shops. Like their minor league team owners right. are, are millionaires. Yeah, and there's a lot of groups that own like eight minor league teams right. and like run them as definitely the opposite of a mom and pop shop. Uh, I'm also curious to see the list of politicians who sent the recent uh, letter, you know, that has been made public about preserving the minor leagues. Who is on that and who was signing off on the, what was it, the preserve the sanctity of <laughs> baseball and the year our Lord, whatever it was. The, the that Freedom was, and Apple Pie Act. That was, yeah. Right, that was trying to lock up uh, minor league pay. I'd like to know who those two are. I wonder if minor league owners, which are, you know, in some of these small counties across America, the, the minor league ballpark is, you know, you, I hate for those places to lose a sense of community. Uh, that those are hubs of commerce. Uh, and the people who run that commerce are probably powerful within that community. They have influence. And so I wonder where the overlap is of the, of the people who wanted to limit minor league pay as a way of preventing this new solution. Uh, I said that in scare quotes for people listening to the pod- <laughs> podcast. Thank you. Um, it's like, who, where is this coming from? Like, what is the motivation for, um, for the folks on the political side? It, so, And also from MLB's point of view, like, Taking some of these places that might have you know stadiums built in the last twenty years and essentially like ending them as companies, they have to cut some big checks. So it's like it's not like they're just cutting free and it's all you know, there's no cost involved. Like they're gonna have to cut, I would imagine, millions of dollars in checks to make this happen. So like this would be a a long term solution that's not gonna include bringing some teams back. So like it's a pretty final right. thing. So maybe a more moderate step would make more sense since we don't really know how it's gonna play out. We have these giant spring training facilities in Arizona that most of the year aren't really being used. Uh, and that's a bummer, and the idea of uh, using those more frequently for player development re- is is positive as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I live there. You get to see more players. That'd be nice. Uh, but but then you just have all these you know vacant ghost town stadiums across the country that there are you know proposed but potentially dubious ways of filling with lousy baseball. So and those backfield games have like oftentimes like no culture at all like there's no one there there's no music yeah. being played there's no fans there's no yeah. concession stands like if you take it from an Appalachian town and stick it on a backfield it's like it like you know it loses a lot of charm but you could also say like the the players that won't seem you know they're, they're losing a lot of the experience as well yeah let's go to some questions and turn the spot on again please okay yeah there they are awesome hey. oh. <laughs> oh prepared all right so yeah I've been waiting to ask questions for a bit but Okay, let's go. Um, <laughs> I haven't even wrote it down. Uh, every player seems to be going through uh, some sort of decline or progression. And you guys were talking about some of the different things that you notice before a player maybe gets better or is getting worse. I love you guys' prospect lists. I, I'm all about it. Eat it all up. I'm just wondering, when are we going to see the, like a list on, of, of big leaguers scouting reports? I mean, if players are always constantly adjusting and getting better and there's all these factors, why do we just have it for the minors? So that is a great idea. <laughs> we, it is a thing we want to do and have the board on the website that is currently like our evaluations and rankings of all the minor leaguers just have a little check box that you can click and then all the, the big leaguers merge in. So like we've been talking about it for years and have like actually made moves in that direction, but it's quite an undertaking to dynamically update like 900 players or you know, whatever it is all at once. So there are things going on in the background of the thing that populates the board on the website that is preparing for that sort of future. Uh, the pro- there are problems with that because the players are constantly changing and there are only two Eric and Kylie's. Uh, 
Uh, and so that's we are have to figure out how we're going to do deal with that. The solution involves cloning. I was going to say, are there two of yeah. each of you? Because that would make less easier. There, yeah. One one of the Kylie's plans my outfits. <laughs> that's so a great yes. question. It's a good yeah, question. It is a thing that is on the horizon. If you're looking at the horizon from like a helicopter or <laughs> tall building. <laughs> As a thing that is still receding, but will eventually get closer. I mean, I eat it all up. I have my own website with like a bunch of different stats. So whenever you guys can release it, I'm I'm ready. <laughs> Terrific. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, so with um, like the minor leagues getting smaller, which will make it easier to watch players. But there's so many minor league teams and players out there that when you're watching a guy for like two or three games, how do you tell like this is something that it could just be a bad stretch, or this is something that could mean he, he'll struggle in the big leagues. Right, so right, the problem of small samples visually, um, typically that means throwing the results of an outing out. Like we, During the course of a game, we don't really care who's winning. We're not concerned with what the box score is. Uh, performance is a thing that we derive our opinions about over time. Um, like the lower the level, the less the actual outcome matters. It's more the process right. of so how they do it. If a guy, if like, let's say a pitcher is, has great stuff but has a terrible outing, we're more concerned about the, the stuff aspect. Um, and then we also are looking for a reason maybe that that guy failed, as I was, you know, mentioned before, with like just this, like how a pitcher does this, sorry, Meg, like is telling. If a guy is throwing 96 from a low slot and he's getting shelled, that now tells me there's so, that maybe there's something else going on here, uh, why this stuff isn't playing the way the radar gun says it should be playing. Uh, and then we're also sourcing, right? We're talking to scouts and front office people. So our in-person looks are cross-checked by folks in the industry. So it's, you know, there's not um, like a, a biodiversity problem, right? We're getting a lot of different opinions about each individual player. And so that helps with our rate of failure as well. And I would also say, like, there's a common feeling when we're, like, doing a prospect list and some guy pops up and they're like, hey, this guy was in the DSL and he had 100 this year. We're like, oh, we didn't know about this guy. And I go look at his numbers and it's, like, four strikeouts per nine, ERA was eight, he's 22. And I'm like, there's a big gap between he throws 100, put him on the prospect <laughs> list, but this guy looks like he should be released based on what we have here. And then I need someone to fill that gap. And if they can't fill it, then I'm going to skew toward the results might be telling us more than the him throwing 100 because he might have done it once. And... Now he's heard, and there's there's like all kinds of different things to fill in that gap, and that usually tells you what, like what's in that gap will tell you, I think, where he needs to be. It's a good question. Thank you. Uh, uh, this is a two-parter. The second part I think is harder, so feel free to ignore it. Um, <laughs> oh, it's first, like being back in grad school. <laughs> in, in, indeed. Uh, first part, uh, I I think it's pretty obvious that at the the lower levels you've seen. People like Kyler Murray, who have opted out of doing baseball because they want to do football because it's much more lucrative. They've got an easier shot to make a lot of money. Um, I'm kind of curious if that's sort of endemic at the lower levels when you've definitely got more multi-sport athletes. And then on the second half, uh, kind of on the more future of the sport, I work in education. One of the most interesting things of the year has been the Chicago teacher strike. Uh, and it took a lot of winning hearts and minds to actually make that strike successful. Uh, I don't really think I have to speak to the rest of the room because it's all Fangraphs folks. I think we're pretty all anti-owner and pro-player, but that's definitely not the general public perception, uh, especially because Tony Clark is the union leader. Um, 
What does Major League Baseball and the Players Association especially have to do to kind of win those hearts and minds and, you know, if eventually we get to a strike, ensure that it's in the, the service of the players and not necessarily in service of the owners? So the, the reduction of the minor league uh, is a problem as it relates to your first question. The, um, that type of prospect, the you know, two-sport flyer, someone was an excellent college football player somewhere, played high school baseball and knew an area scout. Like that's gonna, that goes away. There are no more lottery tickets like that in the minors anymore if, if that happens. So there's that part of it. Um, with like Kyler Murray was such a strange situation. I don't know. Uh, the thing that is selecting athletes away from baseball is, is socio socioeconomic disparity. Baseball is expensive to play, uh, especially where you're being seen by scouts. It's often on the travel ball circuit. You have to fly to Fort Myers. You have to fly to Arizona. You have to pay to play on some of the high-end travel ball teams. You have to, you, you know, they all have their own uniforms. College scholarships aren't full, which they are for basketball. That's a problem as well. So there's a, there are a lot of uh, youth athletes selected out of playing baseball simply because there, it takes, you know, you need 18 other people to do it. You can't just go with six other friends to a park with a basketball end of list of supplies and, and shoot around. So I think that that's a problem. Uh, and then, as far as the players union question goes, it's an attention problem. Our attention collectively, I think, is very divided. It's pretty splintered. Uh, there's a lot of stuff for us to know about, for us to be worried about, for us to be thinking about day to day. And it's hard when the players union cares about millionaire athletes, for people to go, yeah, go millionaire athletes. So I don't know, we have to talk about it as a microcosm of a, of a bigger thing. Uh, and I think that's what we're trying to do at the site when we can is point at baseball and say that, hey, this is a thing that's happening culturally everywhere th in a, through a lens that you, person who has been digesting baseball your whole life can understand. And I think most fans interact with baseball as like rooting for laundry, and rooting for laundry is much more closely associated with the owner, who's m less likely to go away as the players who will very likely go away at some point. Uh, and so I think it is, I want to root for outcomes that help my team. Uh, and so that includes supporting the owner in general terms, because uh, that leads to wins, whereas supporting a player means you're rooting for 10 different players on 10 different teams. And so I think if you know the sort of lower information, not quite as rigorous fan that wants to see what's going on at the game, they're not going to think about like, well, Yasmani Grandal like didn't take that four-year, sixty million dollar deal because he didn't want to set a better precedent, and now he's effectively actually getting ninety million over over five years, and that's like that doesn't really light anybody. It barely lights me up. I almost fell asleep during that sentence. <laughs> so it's like it's hard to get someone excited about that when it can be, hey, your team traded for so and so, and now you're going to win the World Series. Like that's very easy to understand. So I feel like they they just have an easier argument to make, which then puts the onus on the Players Association to be like even more correct and more specific and better messaging, which, you know, we'll see if they're able to do that. I, I believe in precision, but I think y you talk about Mike Trout. You talk about how these are, we've never seen better baseball than we're seeing right now. Like they've never been better as players than they are in this moment. And no one gives a shit about the owners because he's not on the field. Mike Trout's on the field, so you talk about Mike Trout. I mean, I think that you're right that there is a, a disconnect between laundry and player, and people are not sympathetic to millionaire athletes, but like, like they really like watching Francisco Lindor. 
They really like watching Patrick Corbin pitch a baseball. And gosh, aren't the Nationals glad they had him because they won a World Series because they had like four pitchers and they paid most of them a lot of money. So I think that that's the connection, right? Because like your kids don't care about the owners of the Yankees or they don't care about this. I mean, maybe they care about the Steinbrenners. I don't know. Maybe they're weird kids, but like <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> but they care about Aaron Judge. So I think it starts there and then you get specific with how it's a reflection of a larger question we're asking as a society and a community about a lot of other things. So and, that's, and that's my lefty answer. And how, and how many owners do you like more the more you learn about them? But then how many players do you like more the more you learn about them? It's like, you see Lindor in the All-Star game when he's mic'd up, like, hopping around. I'm just like, like oh, that's, that's why yeah, everyone likes baseball like, is that. Why is he not the president? This is the most charismatic <laughs> human being on the planet. And then you see, like, a headline with Tom Ricketts in the title. And you're just like, I don't, oh. I don't need that. <laughs> So let's, let's go back to Lindor and Trout. That's, that's great. Yeah. Thank you for your question. Yeah, we do that's our a part great to, to talk about Trout on this podcast oh, yeah. and at this site. Yeah, I think um, so. It is nine forty-five. We want to open the bar up again, which we cannot. We'll do one more question. He's got a pre. He's got a Oh, he's got a destroyer shirt. shirt. Okay, never mind. I take it all back. Yeah. I didn't see the shirt. Uh, hopefully, this question is a little lighter, but might be more difficult to answer at the end of the day. I don't know. Um, like Meg said, we're all pretty smart baseball folk in this room, yes, I would you say. Are. Um, and I assume I'll learn more about this when I purchase future value available for pre-order now online. Uh, <laughs> we're going to hire this guy. I can, I can sit at Thanksgiving, I yell at my relatives about WRC Plus and uh, F-War versus B-War and Maybe all that. Maybe eat some turkey instead. <laughs> I don't know, man. Rated. I just need the stuffing and the mashed potatoes. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, when it comes to prospects, I'm reading three or four different lists written by different people, and then it's up to me to be like, oh, Keith Law hates my dudes. I'm gonna fade his list. I'm gonna look at this, this list looks better. Like, how can I, as somebody who, if you showed me footage of Jason Dominguez hitting something, I can be like, yeah, he definitely hit that ball. How can I be a smarter <laughs> prospect report consumer? That's a great question. Yeah, that is a really good question. We, we <laughs> are keen we to know the answer to that question, as an aside. <laughs> That's the thing that, honestly, I think we struggle with. I think that's part of uh, why Fangraphs prospect stuff hasn't hasn't gone mainstream. Like, um, it's just we chose not to sell out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was gonna say I thought it was the the Manson references <laughs> might have had something to do with it. I don't know. I just think about. Everyone's gonna say, like, what are you gonna do? <laughs> Everyone's gonna say they liked our early stuff. You're getting it on the right ground floor, guys. Anyway. Uh, the, the process that we follow to try to properly assess players is, is, I guess, what I'd have you focus on is like, you know, we ask questions, where should have Big Leaguer X been on a prospect list? Like, we're sort of reverse engineering a lot of uh, stuff. What are expectations, I think? Um, what, what should the layperson expect from a person ranked 80th on a, on a top 100 list? It's really not... It's like a couple of war. It's, yeah, it's really not that much. Um, and so I think those are the things that we're trying to instill in people. We tried to do it uh, last year with like a, a bar chart of potential outcomes, right? Like the Lewis Brinson uh, Kylie brought up earlier. For years, Lewis Brinson has been this you know, high risk 
guy. There's, there's never been a single scout who's like, I'm totally sure that this guy will be a star, no doubt. Uh, some teams have little boxes that they check on the card that say this guy has a chance to be this, but he's more likely this. Um, and it's, it's not exact trying to assess those probabilities uh, at all. But it does exist, and the outcomes are narrower for some than they are for others. And it's been hard to try to impart that uh, to readership, because assessing players is a very visual thing. And understanding a concept like variance uh, and how it applies to different like buckets of players is not an intuitive thing. It's not something that they are exposed to watching big league games 160 times a year. I'd also say if you're um, more verbally inclined or a creative writing person or, or whatever, if you read our reports, you can usually tell if we're really excited about a guy. Like if you read the Ron, I remember I wrote the Wander Frank, the first pass on the Wander Franco report last year, and I tried to figure out what was wrong with him to keep me from calling him perfect. <laughs> and so if you read that, you can be like, all right, he's like first on the list, but like he's like really first on that list. <laughs> and I think there are definitely guys on every list where it's like, oh, this guy's in AAA, he's been pretty good, he's probably gonna play in the big leagues. He like might be a fourth outfielder, might be a third outfielder. And it's gonna be a pretty milk toast like reading report. And you can be like, all right, that guy doesn't seem like maybe they're super excited about him. I, I wouldn't necessarily say feel free to move him down because we put him where we think he should be. But you get an idea of like the flavor of what that guy is. Whereas the guy in rookie ball where it's like his exit velos were this, his rate of hard hit balls was this. Like Michael Scotto, he is qualities in common with Jose Ramirez. The odds that he will be Jose Ramirez is 2% or whatever it is. But Jose Ramirez is an example of a guy that like everyone sort of missed on. Like not just us, a bunch of teams could have had him and they didn't have him. The sort of high contact but not doesn't look physically like most all-stars look kind of guy. And I think we actively will look for this guy does some stuff we like but we don't like, you know, we don't think he has upside when the concept of upside I think is a little overrated. And so you look at Escato and you're like, okay, well this guy does a lot of stuff well. He's never failed before. He does look like some guys that are all-stars. So let's consider him as he could possibly be an all-star instead of saying, well, he didn't get $2 million and he doesn't look like he could play in the NFL. So like, why do we like this guy? And so looking backward at sort of misses or guys that we miscalibrated or like certain kinds of like, you know, kinds of plate discipline that are not necessarily as predictive, we now can talk to friends with teams and they'll say, oh, this guy's got 40 pitch selection and 60 aggressiveness in the zone and things that we could always sort of say in general terms. And now we have numbers behind it. And so I think we can kind of zero in on guys. So I think between looking at what, how many pieces of evidence we have as a proxy for how good we feel about it. And then also looking at sort of like the level of emotion behind it, because there's a couple guys I think on every list where we're like, you can tell we're excited, but we put them where we think we have to put them. But it's like, if you had to pick somebody, you'd, you'd probably pick that guy. And then the other thing I'd say is watch bad baseball. The reason, <laughs> the reason Jason Dominguez doesn't register to you when you watch him on video is because that's like the talent you're used to watching on TV when you're watching a Yankees game. But if you see that guy on a backfield full of 20 kids who don't really have a chance or aren't as physically developed, that's where you see how it stands out. And so going to a high school state championship game or a St. John's game uh, and, and watching players at that level is going to give you context that you didn't have before. It will be illuminating and, and like make you appreciate big league talent more too. I was watching the World Series with an area scout and uh, – we were a little overserved, but like we were, <laughs> we were giggling with. It was just incredible watching what these guys do when you're sifting through, you know, high school and college players. And if you want to learn more about how to scout, there's a book called Future Valley available for pre-order now. Well, tell get, me more about you're it. You're getting it. You're getting Where it. Where can I order it? <laughs> Excellent. Um, 
thank you all for coming. Thank you to our Patreon supporters of Effectively Wild. We appreciate you. We appreciate our Fangraphs members. We're going to open the bar back up. We have to be out of here at 1030, so I'm not going to say to drink fast, but I'm going to say that the bar is going to open again, and you should take advantage of that to the extent you want. But thank you to our panelists and to all of you for coming. Thanks, everyone. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks to those of you who came out to the show. It was fun to meet everyone. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Thomas Burton, Eric Wolf, Sarah Luthi, Joshua Blanchfield, and Brian Kelly. Thanks to all of you. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Forms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you still have time to join the Effectively Wild Secret Santa. Registrations close early next week. A couple hundred people are already in, including me. You can contact me and Meg and Sam via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you are already a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. See ya, see ya, see ya.